You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. Airline Pilot Guy episode 396. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 404 at the Hilton Garden Inn in Louisville, Kentucky. Today's show is recorded on the 17th of October, 2019. In today's episode, two pilots for an Argentine airline allegedly filmed fireworks during a landing approach. More than 5% of older Boeing 737s have cracks. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plane Tales, Operate Moi Les Deluge, Part 4. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger. Flight 396 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we cover the latest in aviation news and answer your feedback. I'm Captain Jeff. In my 31st year of flying for a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia, which I like to call Acme Airlines, and I'm also joined today by some awesome hosts, uh, including from his studio in the English countryside, a professional photographer, former RAFRAAF fighter pilot, former captain for an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. Oh, hi there, Jeff, and great to be joining you for another show. Isn't it great? Uh, sadly, only three of us at the moment, but I'm sure we'll get one more towards the end. Let's hope so. And also joining us from his studio near the Concord Covered Bridge in Smyrna, Georgia, a barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pontoon boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy airline, it's Captain Dana. Oh, great to be back for another fantastic episode with you guys. Missing Dr. Seth a little bit, but we hope to see her in a little while. Yes, we're hoping. We're hoping. She has a doctor's appointment. She's at, wait a minute. She's a doctor. How did Yeah, why ha- does a doctor need to go to the doctor? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, doctor, heal thyself. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, you know, we, we all know and we don't say it. She has a little issue with her head. And uh, <laughs> so hopefully that doctor will be able to help. Trouble is, well, she also runs HR, so just be careful oh, what you say, Jeff. Oops. Yeah, no kidding. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. Of course, she knows I'm kidding. And it's hard to be a backstabber yourself. If you, can, you know, stabbing yourself in the back might be a little difficult. Yeah, but I bet if anybody could do it, she could. Yep. Probably. Um, yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. So, so she hopes to join us at some point later on in today's show, and then we'll get all caught up with her uh, because she has a lot to. Uh, to tell us about. Uh, she's been a very busy girl. And I think we should go ahead and just jump right on into the new segment. So here we go. Stand by for news.
Okay, the first item in the news folder is an Australinius Arias. I'm not sure if that's the proper pronunciation or not, but uh, pilots caught filming River Plate Stadium fireworks on final approach to Buenos Airport and the Buenos Aires Aziza Airport, Argentina. Uh, they were coming in on final approach, and they noticed that fireworks were being shot off the or around the River Plate Stadium. And the fireworks show is a tradition before every game, and that evening with more importance as it was the game between the River Plate, or Plate maybe is the way you say that, and Boca Juniors in the Copa Libertadores semifinal. Don't you love my accent? It's so authentic. Um, while the aircraft was approaching the runway and on autopilot, both pilots were filming the fireworks above the stadium, approximately 400 meters from the glide path. Now, I don't know exactly what they mean by that 400 meters from the glide path or on the glide path at about 400 meters above the ground. Take your pick, I guess. Uh, none of the pilots seemed to be paying attention to the instruments and the upcoming landing. The video went viral on social media, but next to a lot of hits, the pilots will have some headaches as they now have to provide text and explanation to their employer, Austral. The company will conduct an investigation. Now, this is, last sentence is puzzling to me, but according to sources within the company, it's unlikely that the pilots will be sanctioned. Now, maybe they have different rules over there in South America, but I can guarantee you if that were some American pilots and probably British pilots, uh, they'd be looking for employment. Yeah, Dana is... Yeah, I wish you could see him on the uh, on the video. He does this to me actually in private all the time. He he's doing that uh, that uh, signage or the nonverbal communication <laughs> of putting his hand underneath his neck like he's slicing my neck open. Yes, he is a very violent, mean Slightly person. Worried. Yeah, very very violent. <laughs> I do it all the time. Too. Yeah, I know. Just directed at you. Yeah, I know. That's the only reason why he's on the show because he's threatened me so many times with my life. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But anyway, yeah. So th if this, well, I do, I do threaten you with your life anytime I see you. I give you that big old beer hug, and I almost crush you. I know. You make me uh, a little, a little stuff comes out of my mouth. You squeeze me so hard, and other places when it comes out yeah, of well, your ears. Yeah, I was gonna say, well, just <laughs> stop. Yes, uh, <laughs> Pip in the uh, YouTube chat room is saying, "Dumb, dumb, dumb." Now I'm not sure if he's commenting on the three videos that he's watching the three faces on the video or if he's talking about how really really <laughs> dumb these pilots were I would be dumb dumber and dumbest, <laughs> yeah, but, dumbest. Uh, <laughs> anyway yeah i mean uh this this really does uh, uh well we see people putting up videos and uh even uh, the approach and landing and uh 99.9 percent .9 of the time uh, they are from a fixed camera which requires no attention during the approach. So it would be relatively safe to do that. Uh, but to handhold your phone while you're doing it, and then to catch sight of the guy beside you, who's also doing exactly <laughs> the same thing, that really does reek of incompetence. Yeah. So wouldn't like to see people handholding uh, the phone on the approach, uh, doing anything with it. Uh, but uh, having said that, yeah, that's... It's can, definitely smack up. Can I ask the obvious question? Yes. Is there no cockpit door? Obviously, you, 
obviously illegal for us to do anything. Well, really not supposed to have your personal electronic devices on at all uh, from the time we do the pushback checklist completion of it until we shut down the engines and do the shutdown checklist. That's the proper way of doing things. And I would imagine, you know, well, I know here in the States, I would be with every employer. I would imagine most employers in the world. But what I'm thinking is, how did the people get video of this? If they're in the cockpit, is there no cockpit uh, door? No, they, they were not seeing the video. The pilots the, are taking the video. The pilots are taking the video. And because the stadium is off to the right-hand side, uh, as the captain is shooting a picture, he brings the first officer into the view. So you can see the captain's picture of the first officer also taking pictures. So, yeah, not, not brilliant. And uh, yes, I you, you must remember that the rules in your airline are pretty strict regards to this compared yeah. with most other airlines. That's our own airline's more stricter policy than even the FAA exactly. rules. Yeah. Yep. Well, you know, Acme takes uh, safety pretty seriously. So that's, but anyways, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I did not, oh, you could I say they're not, a bit anal. Yeah, well, yeah. Those that chew on coal poop diamonds. Anyways, <laughs> um, uh, I'm sorry. I apologize. To I, I, I did not watch the video, so that's why I did not know. I was just reading the, the verbiage, and thus now I know the reason why. Gotcha. Thank you. There you go. There's a solution to everything. Yeah, I should but watch whatever. the video before I comment. If, <laughs> if if you're a very very senior captain about to retire, you might not mind too much. But uh, if you're a, anywhere close to being a junior captain or a first officer looking to carry on a good long career this is not an ideal thing to do nope it is not okay well anyway i just find that i found that last sentence very interesting that it's likely that they weren't even get us going to get a slap on the wrist yeah for that. No, that, uh, were they actually management pilots someone oh, maybe or? they were <laughs> i don't know there you go Perhaps it's the chief pilot so he's not <laughs> going to slap himself <laughs> or he might but he might enjoy it. So. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Uh, let's see. B cracks found on more than 5% of older Boeing 737s in the pickle fork inspections. It's the old pickle fork conspiracy. Uh, we talked about the fact that uh, they had started to see some very, very fine hairline cracks in these components on the 737 new generation airplanes. I believe that would include what the um, the uh, 600, 700, 800, 900 series. Uh, I think it's seven, eight, nine hundred. Seven, eight, nine. I know for us it is, but I think that there are some other airlines that fly the uh, other models as well. But anyway, would these be considered older models? Because I thought they all sound pretty new. Yeah, well, some of them are not really that old at all. No, um, not really older models. Um, they are just not. As new as the Max, I guess, if you're going to differentiate, you know, between the new generation and the and the Max and the age and all that kind of stuff. But no, you're right, uh, Captain Nick. They're still making uh, the uh, new generation models in addition to the Max, as far as I know. Uh, but anyway, they so we, we talked about these pickle forks, you know, the, the component that um, basically is where the wings attach to the wing box and fuselage and kind of allow for the wings to flex. And I reckon it looks more like a spork than a pickle fork. Yeah. I don't know. Go. It's uh, well, it's a, 
Yeah, I think you're right. Because uh, well, I mean, you get those wooden things to eat your your French fries within Europe, and that's exactly what they look like. Except they're small and made of wood. Perhaps that's Boeing's problem. They made them out of wood. Oh, I don't know. Oops. Did they do that? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. But I'll tell you what. Boeing is quite in the pickle, isn't? Aren't they? Yes, it is. Well, what's going on with the seven three seven? Yeah. 5% uh, seems a, a low number, but when you add up the total number of aircraft, that's a lot of airframes to fix. And I believe when they take these things out of service to actually repair them, it takes uh, at least like a week and a half, two weeks for each Ooh, one. Yeah. So ouch. that's a, that, a big problem. Cheap. And Jeff, so I can I raise this back up. You were yeah. correct. Uh, you have to worry about the 50% out. 737-600 is listed okay. as a new model. Six, which, seven, eight, and nine. Correct. What about the five? So the 500 isn't? No, that's not what the article says. Six, seven, eight, and nine. Okay. Very good. All right. I, I wonder yeah. what they did different in the manufacture or the assembly in those later models that they weren't doing in the initial ones. Because the initial ones uh, seem to be going on, you know, there are some of the old 200, 300s still mm-hmm. flying, doing very well. I'm wondering in, if it has something to do with the fact that, I don't, I don't know if they started doing this with the 737 model or not, but they started to try to use more outside third-party uh, manufacturers uh, in mm. and then assembling everything together. And perhaps this is not something that they've actually made themselves. I don't know, you know, what the actual deal is. Yeah, I'd love to know if there was a correlation, if any of our listeners are involved with that. Sorry, Dan, I didn't mean to talk over you. No, it's okay. I'm used to it. Go ahead. Cheeky <laughs> oh, <geez>, man. <laughs> All right. Turn him off. Get him off. Get him off. Right. Shut him up. That's it. No, yeah. I, was, I was just going to say. He's yeah. out of there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I have oh, the power. Oh, good thing you can't, see, you can't see below the screen view. <laughs> Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, anyways, uh, what I was going to say is we always uh, come to the old adage, they just aren't making them like they used to. You know, we talk Mm -hmm. about all the things in our lives, you know, washing machines, dishwashers, cars, the whole nine yards. Uh, I would have to say that that would probably be a a good uh, guess, Jeff, uh, what you were talking about. I mean, it it would possibly be a change in in manufacture or or a technique or material. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, could yeah. could be any one of those uh, any one of those items. I would guess. I don't know. Maybe somebody out there listening knows the answer. Or the other issue is is the aircraft have been uh, changed in length and, and width. Well, not width, but length. So it might be putting extra stress on those joints without a redesign. Yeah, but think about the uh, the seven hundred and six hundred models are pretty short. Well, that's why we call them the fluff jet. Yeah. So I don't know what the deal is. Did anybody know what the fluff jet? Well, we, means? we used to call it the fluff uh, or fluff, yeah. um, the yeah. 73200 uh, model. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a, the 700 is not much bigger than the no. 200. Anyways, enough about that. Okay. Well, um, yeah. So it's a problem. And, but honestly, I'm not really too upset about it because uh, anything that takes other airplanes other than the mad dog out of service just prolongs the life of the fleet at acme airlines ah, that's what i'm looking for every cloud yeah there we go and and of course the durability of the mad dog is just proving to be far more durable than the other equipment that we're talking well, about they, you know the dc9s have been known to you know be considered to be made like tanks 
like very, very rugged airplane. So that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, C. Um, oh, by the way, um, let's see the previous one. Larry Gregory in Tulsa, Oklahoma sent us a picture of the Boeing pickle forks. And we'll put that in the show notes. If you want to take a look at those or those, uh, what'd you call them? Sporks. Captain. <laughs> I don't know what the proper name for them is, but yeah, I've heard that name banded around. So, uh, rate on item C Ray Davis and Robert Fairbairn, otherwise known as Dick, um, sent us, uh, both sent us this news item. Um, apparently a pilot and his passenger had an unbelievably lucky escape when their plane crashed into a ski lift and uh, ski lift cables actually. And they were left completely uninjured. The 60 year old, 62 year old pilot was able to get out of the plane, but his 55 year old passenger had to be rescued after they were tra- left trapped in the cockpit. Footage shows the light aircraft tangled in the ski lift wires dangling precariously upside down. And, uh, they're, they're, they have some videos taken by rescue teams, and you can see one of the rescue team members kind of, uh, what would you call it, uh, kind of bear, creeping along the, uh, the, the, uh, the ski cable, ski lift cable toward the uh, upside down airplane. And there's a dejected looking pilot sitting on the, uh, one of the wings waiting for the rescuer to uh, approach the airplane. Anyway, it, uh, this incident occurred at a ski resort. Uh, north of Milan in the Italian Alps. Um, let's see. I have a, this second article that I added here because I think it has a little bit more information. Oh, wait. What happened to it? I don't see it. Hmm. Okay. I thought I had something that said what exactly happened here, but I guess the airplane lost power and uh, was coming down. And a lot of people, or uh, someone said, Walter Milan spokesperson uh, said that uh, they were very very lucky it was a miraculous escape the plane crashed into the cables but fortunately fortunately it became stuck rather than crashing to the ground that whole area you know if you have a ski lift it's probably not flat terrain so it does look pretty um there's lots of trees and very steep valleys and nowhere flat (laughs) yeah so yeah i can understand why he says they're very lucky that they actually kind of snagged this wire. I'm sure that they he didn't try to do that. You, you don't think he would have, do you? I wouldn't have thought so. I thought his attention was probably uh, somewhere other than keeping an eye on his flight path because he was probably desperately trying to get his motor going again or whatever, fix whatever problem he had. And it's a miracle that neither, um, neither the pilot nor the passenger had any injuries at all. And um, the uh, spokesperson, uh, Mr. Milan, Added, there are a number of possible reasons for the crash, such as human error or a mechanical failure, but we do not want to speculate. This, uh, there will be an investigation. Uh, that's our job. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what's the aircraft type? Anyone um, call it that? I don't, I don't know. It's it, I, don't, I don't even recognize it at all. It looks like a high wing, although in the mm-hmm. photo, since it's upside down, it looks like a low wing. It's a low wing, wing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With yeah. the landing and gear. And the wheels are on, on the, the ceiling. Top. So, well, they do it on the top of the fuselage. I don't no, know. Very it's going for landing on the clouds. <laughs> yeah so i have no idea what kind of airplane it is it doesn't look like a cessna uh it looks like some kind of model of airplane i've never seen Luscom, maybe I, I don't know i don't know anyway interesting thank you yeah, uh really lucky ray and robert can you imagine being on the 
They didn't mention anybody on the actual ski lift. Maybe it wasn't actually operating because it doesn't look like there's any snow on the ground there. There's no snow yet. Um, and then well, this, I'll tell you, that is some rugged terrain. It is. It's pretty, but uh, rugged. It's pretty rugged. <laughs> um, bam. He is. Thank you, you are on fire today. I'm trying. Captain Nielsen. You're well, just on fire. If you only I knew. I can't wait to see him on fire. <laughs> 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 those, those chilies I had last night. Yeah, I'm on fire. Um, D, wrong kind of fuel was used in plane that crashed near Kokomo, Indiana. Uh, so this is kind of a baffling one to me, and I think anybody who has knows anything mm-hmm. about this. Um, so basically, um, the, a flight surgeon, a um, well-known plastic surgeon, not flight surgeon, plastic surgeon, in uh, Tampa, Florida, was flying, I'm assuming it was his Aerostar, I'm not sure, uh, an Aerostar 602P, Piper Aerostar 602P, um, which is a piston-powered airplane, not a jet uh, turboprop uh, airplane, flew up from Tampa to Kokomo, Indiana to give some flight instruction to someone up there, uh, and he did that earlier in the day, and then when he was uh, approaching, I guess, the uh, FBO uh, to have the airplane refueled, I guess one of the linemen uh, who uh, fuel airplanes uh, said to him, "It his airplane looked a lot like a jet. Do you want jet fuel in your airplane? Now, maybe uh, the plastic surgeon, Dr. Daniel P. Greenwald, um, thought that he was just joking around and being sarcastic, and he said, yes. And when the pilot, uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, I think he asked him a second time, uh, if, are you sure you want jet fuel added to your airplane? And he said, yes, a second time. Again, according to the lineman, we don't have the pilot here with us anymore to answer this question no. because he. And is there any corroboration to this conversation? I don't think so. No. Um, so I'm, I'm skeptical that, that the flight surgeon, I mean, I keep saying flight surgeon, the plastic surgeon, Dr. Daniel actually told him to put jet fuel in the air airplane. Uh, but again, a worker at the Kokomo municipal airport in Indiana put 163 gallons of jet fuel in the Piper Aerostar 602P, according to the NTSB, uh, report released on Thursday, a preliminary report. The Aerostar is a propeller plane with two engines designed to run on standard low-lead aviation gasoline. Um, so uh, let's see, what else did they want to say here? Uh, an employee at the Kokomo facility later told investigators that as Greenwald was approaching the airport in the Aerostar, the employee asked him if he wanted jet fuel. He said yes. The employee, who is not named in the report, told investigators he asked because the Aerostar looked like a jet airplane. When Greenwald arrived, the employee parked the fuel truck. Maybe this is when he was approaching the airport and maybe he was talking on Unicom. And so when he actually was on the ground and um, approached the uh, employee um, regarding this, again, he asked, do you want me to put jet fuel in the airplane? And he said, yes. Um, So he parked the jet fuel truck in front of the Aerostar while the doctor was still inside the airplane. The truck truck was marked with jet a on the left, right and rear sides. Um, 
Anyway, so here's a problem. The, well, there are a lot of problems here. The fuel filler receptacle on the Aerostar, uh, and much like uh, cars or automobiles, I'm not sure what they were like over there in the UK, but they're oh, same all, as you guys. Same, uh, like, you know, you can only put different one. Different nozzle for uh, mm-hmm. leaded uh, and different for diesel. Yeah. So you can easily tell because the nozzle doesn't match the hole in the car. So that would have been a red flag, right? You yep. know, to the fueler yep. that, hmm, that this is not, this jet fuel nozzle, which is much larger diameter, um, is not fitting into this receptacle. And so he had to, he spilled like a gallon, he says, of, of fuel before he was able to position the jet fuel um, nozzle. nozzle, thank you, at a certain angle so that he could finally get the jet fuel to go past the device that only allows the 100 low lead uh, nozzle in and was able to get 163 gallons of fuel. And, and I'm, I'm not a regular refueler or a pilot or a fly one of these aircraft, but isn't it written right beside the filler cap? That's what I'm wing? thinking too, but I don't, isn't it, I don't know. Uh, if it's Dana, re- you'd know this, mate. I mean, I think don't they you do a lot say, more light aircraft flying than I do, but isn't it written right beside the refueling point? What it, fuel it's labeled going? right there. It, it's, it yeah. says it 100 be. LL. Or I would mm-hmm. say uh, um, Avgas, Avgas, or or you know a Jet A, mm-hmm. a Jet A one. Uh, it would it says it right next to its label. And actually, yeah. if I, I don't know that I've looked at the top of the wing on our airplane, but I would imagine by the fill valve, even on our aircraft, it would say on the overwing, not yeah, the overwing. single point. Yeah, yeah, not single point, but the overwing. Mm-hmm. I imagine it would. Yeah. Me too. So, I'm pretty yeah, sure yeah. it says it underneath as well, as well as all the pressures and limitations, etc. But mm-hmm. yeah, only from doing my own walk rounds, looking up there. Yeah, I mean it's 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 written. It's clear as day. Yeah. So I, you know, when I read this article, I, I felt as though there's a bit of the employee CYA covering his assets. It does, and so. it says he's like a, a city employee, so I, that's kind of odd to me too, because usually these uh, these fixed base operations are like private enterprises, but I don't know. I'm not sure what they have up there at uh, Kokomo, Indiana. Um, yeah. So anyway, he took off with the, the jet fuel and I guess there was still enough avgas left in the lines to get the engine started and taxi out and take off. But shortly after he took off, uh, I guess that's when the jet fuel hit the uh, engines and didn't work out. He uh, crashed and died. Yeah, absolutely tragic. Now, um, I guess being the captain of the airplane, the the buck finally stops with him because it's your responsibility to make sure you know what fuel has been put on. Uh, I realize that if you did a fuel check with the siphon, you would probably get uh, Avgas out. Uh, So, you know, that wouldn't reveal to it. But you should, I would have thought, most conscientious uh, pilots would watch their aircraft being refueled. Or um, perhaps I'm being naive. Yeah, I I agree with you. Well, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I would agree with that, uh, Nick. It's a lot of times when I'm flying GA, I would watch, um, you know, make sure the right truck pulled up in or the right nozzle. Um, but not all the time. I mean, if 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 you you know, have to go to the bathroom in a hurry, uh, you you may just say you know do this and and walk away. So. I can't really yeah. comment for him, but you know, not I wouldn't say 100 percent of the time. Uh, you, you you you'd have there's a certain level of trust that you'd say you know put a certain amount of fuel on the airplane, and 
again, I, I still think there's some CYA going on here. I, I would highly, highly let me start it over because it, it's kind of irritating to me that somebody that is trained to fuel an airplane would then force a nozzle into a, in, or, or try to figure out how to get a nozzle into a hole that that it doesn't fit into. Right. And if there was any question there, I mean, I really, I mean, it's a one source uh, information right now. It's the person that fueled the airplane. The person that received the fuel is not here to talk about it. And I feel like I want to defend that person because I find it very highly unlikely, especially if this guy flies his own airplane, that he would actually say Jet A on his piston-driven airplane. Right. That yeah. just makes yeah. no sense to me at all. Yeah. And so, the only yeah. the only scenario I can see is if you're you're the guy sounds like he's being sarcastic or joking around and you're just playing along. Um and oh yeah, you know, yeah, it, it's a jet uh jet fuel. You know, I, I mean that's the only thing I can think of, but I, I don't think that's really likely. I think you're right. I think it sounds to me like uh there's some cover up going on here. Yeah, yeah. I, I suspect that'll found out in the courts. Because yeah. uh, I can't imagine it won't go there in the end. Yeah, and, and this is a perfect perfect example of a um perfect example of you know he said she said or he said he said uh you know how do you how do you how do you debunk what was said? There's right. a recording device. The know? only witness is dead, or the so, only other witness besides right. the fueler. Yeah. Apparently, I don't know. Okay, well, hopefully we'll figure out what happened there. And if anybody listening uh, hears anything about this, please do send us feedback on this so we can talk about it on the show and inform everybody else. Um, and then uh, looks like item E uh, over in the UK, they plan to allow failed airlines to keep flying to repatriate or repatriate customers. How would you say that, Nick? Repatriate? Uh, repatriation, yes. Okay, we say repatriate for some reason. Um, because you know, it's just a little bit different. Feel free. Yeah. We don't mind. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> After all, it is your English, correct? Uh, I think, uh, now you have a version now, which we <laughs> have disowned. Okay. American-ish. Yes. Um, <laughs> let's see. Pro proposed changes to aviation rules following the grounding of Thomas Cook aircraft and crew. So we all know what happened. Uh, Thomas Cook was grounded and it stranded. More than 140,000 holiday makers and the Civil Aviation Authority, the CAA, had to secure the use of 150 aircraft from around the world to operate nearly 700 flights at a cost of 100 million pounds to the, and it says the exchequer. Chequer. So what what is that word and what does it mean? Sorry, um, whereabouts is it? It's, um... Oh, the exchequer, is that what you're yes. referring to? What is uh, that? So I would have said the... 100 the, uh, million pounds to the taxpayers, but I don't know. Is that uh, the exchequer? Uh, the chancellor of the exchequer is the man who controls all the money in our country. So the exchequer is a money exchange. And so I suppose then the money that he would be exchanging to pay for the 150 aircraft and crews and all that kind of stuff would probably uh, be. There you go. Pounds, yes. Yep. Taxpayers. So. Yep. Anyway, the government believes enabling the CAA to use an airline's existing planes and crew in future cases would mean there is less disruption and cost to taxpayers. So I can understand why they are proposing this. Um, any 
Any thoughts about that, Nick? Is that a good idea? Or? Yeah, I think it's a horrendous idea. I think you'd only have to ask Captain Al of his opinion. Um, uh, we talk all a lot, a lot about uh, the mindset of a pilot when he's getting in to conduct a flight and how important for safety it is that his mind is 100% on his job so he can deal with any problems, spot things that are going wrong. And a pilot that is preoccupied with the fact that he has lost his job and may actually, I don't know how this works with insurance, with all the other things that happen when an airline has been declared bankrupt, how you're supposed to generate the aircraft and keep them le flying legally and then ask the pilots who really ought to be getting their poop in a pile and uh, looking for jobs to then continue to work for this airline they know is coming to a hold and that they are doing their last few flights and uh, they really want to jump ship and go and do it. How you'd get the pilots to do that and why you would want to when the, you've, you've seen the emotion on Al's face when he even talks about uh, Monarch going under, that was two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet it still affects him deeply. And it affects, you saw some of the, oh, I saw the, some of the interviews of the Thomas Cook pilots who were deeply troubled by the uh, demise of their airline and uh, close to tears, if not uh, worse. So how you then expect them to conduct flights safely in that mental state, I, I don't know. I think this is so stupid. I can see it from a financial point of view. Someone's thought, oh, that's a good idea. But they really haven't questioned the other aspects of trying to do this. What do you think the chances are that this something like this is actually, you know, legislation is actually enacted? <laughs> I think very remote, personally. Yeah. I think there is too many barriers, first of all, in the, the legal aspects of uh, uh, who's going to insure these aircraft, uh, how are you going to pay for it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then where are you going to find the crews to fly them? If you could get uh, uh, crews from another airline, possibly, to operate those aircraft, that might work. But what airline is going to lend half its air crews to go off and fly? Uh, right. And the aircraft may not be configured quite the same, so now you've got additional problems uh, Who's going to make sure all the software and things are kept up to date? Who's going to service these aircraft? Because all the engineers have lost their jobs as well, unless you, pardon me, using third-party engineering. So there are just too many variables here, uh, all of which are based around an incredibly emotional moment in anyone's life. No, they've just lost their job. Well, you make a lot of good points. Well, yeah. So I'm hoping it doesn't happen. I really don't, because... Yeah. I think it's it's plain stupid. Oh, I get it. P-L-A-N-E, stupid. Oh, there you go. That's actually uh, going to be my new podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've already got it. You just need to rename this one. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> APG has changed to plain stupid. Okay. You uh, know? Yes? I don't know why my video is frozen, by the way. I'm hardwired to the, the internet. Oh. Well, it's a, it's a good pose. Yeah, this is a very good pose. <laughs> yeah, it looks like I'm about to pass out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's your normal look. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to restart it here, I guess. I don't know. But anyways, the, the moral of the story, I think, uh, and I agree with, with, with Nick, is I I can't see anybody um, wanting, wanting to uh, willingly fly knowing that their job is gone. 
uh, I think that would really impact safety. I don't think that would be a, a mental state that should be certifiable to be okay to fly. Uh, I think that would be a disqualification, medically speaking, because, you know, your your attention is not going to be to detail. It's not going to be to safety. And I think it would compromise, compromise the operation completely. Um, you know, they'd be much better off chartering uh, an, another airline. Uh, there are several other airlines out there, uh, including a couple that are based there in England that would. Uh, was that me or you? It was me. <laughs> it wasn't me. It was me. Shut up. <laughs> ah, okay. Right in the middle of my side. No. So uh, I think they would be much better off chartering um, and bringing those people home that are still stranded instead of trying to force people that are not going to get paid, that have yeah. no interest in safety uh, to fly aircraft. Which is what their current, their current system, the current system is they charter aircraft from other airlines to do this work for them. Yep. I mean, apart from the, anything else, um, the aircraft are instantly assets of uh, the receiver, whoever is looking after the uh, assets of the bankrupt airline. Um, and uh, say one crashes. Uh, so, you know, you're going to throw risk all those assets uh, when they're supposed to be going towards paying all the debts of this bankrupt or going towards paying the debts of this bank you can't you just can't do that but i don't think anyone's really thought this through yeah i think you're right sounded like a good idea when they put it on paper well someone's had a knee jerk or something i don't know yeah all right well we'll have to see what you'll have to let us know nick if something like that actually goes i think it'll quietly die a death and we won't see (laughs) i think there are more important things as well on people's minds right now yeah (laughs) i think you're right uh, and finally, item F. Um, so Dana, you're we're hearing a lot of noise. <laughs> I'm trying to get this stupid thing to work here. I'm okay, sorry. You, go uh, ahead and you're mute eating, yourself, you're, please. You're eating chips. We can <laughs> yeah, eat. we hear you eat chewing. I'm actually not <laughs> eating chips. Well, you're eating something. They're called uh, harvest snaps. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, come fool us. Yeah, yeah. Harvest snaps. So, do you want me to mute your you, or do you are you going to mute yourself? He's muted himself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. All right. NTSB releases pre- preliminary report on the cause of fatal B-17 plane crash at Bradley International Airport. Now, that's kind of a bad headline, actually, <laughs> because it's not a preliminary report on the cause of the fatal. Huh. It's a preliminary report on the crash of the B-17 um, at Bradley International Airport. And basically, it's just a the facts that they've gathered so far. They they don't make any attempt to come up with a cause or probable cause in the, uh, in the situation, in the, in the report. So, um, but there are some interesting facts. I thought, uh, the rough mag on the number four, I think we had heard that the number four engine was the one that was giving them trouble. Yes. And a rough mag would cause a certain element of misfiring. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that might be right. Um, the fact that he said he was 300 feet above ground level, uh, midfield right downwind leg. So mm-hmm. uh, that's halfway down the runway on the downwind leg. So still traveling down in order to turn around and land. Uh, um, I haven't done many circuits recently, so <laughs> I'd be right in saying that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I think uh, the crosswind so 300, uh, 
the right crosswind was at about 500 feet, and then midway through the uh, right downwind, they were at uh, 300 feet. Yeah, that that seems to me a bit low. Yeah, it does sound very low. Yeah. And so it d- doesn't sound to me like they're getting a lot of performance out of the aircraft because that's uh, a four-engine aircraft uh, with one engine out, and it doesn't it doesn't appear to be completely out because uh, it's just rough running. Uh, it's lightweight. It's only got a few passengers. Uh, I don't suppose it's got heaps and heaps of fuel on board. You'd think it had quite reasonable performance on three engine. You would think. Now they did certainly enough to climb. They did sorry, mention sorry, in, in the report that uh, three of the no two of the three propeller blades on the number three engine were found in either feathered or very close to feathered position, uh, which is kind of odd because they didn't mention anything about the number three oh, engine. I didn't spot that. Yeah, yes. What about the number four engine? What number four engine. All there? all um, propellers were feathered on that one. Oh. So. Um, so it, it almost seems that based on these facts that, uh, they only were getting, uh, power basically from the two engines on the left wing and very little, if any, from the right wing. And I'm wondering if it, if they were also experiencing trouble with the, uh, number three, or if they accidentally, because the propeller pitch levers, um, are very close to each other, one, two, three, four in a row. and Perhaps I'm mean, just speculating here, of course, um, mm. by feathering the number four and maybe perhaps bumping the uh, number three propeller pitch um, that somehow that might have happened by accident. I don't know. Or maybe there was really something going on with the number three as well. The other thing I thought was interesting, Nick, is that the they made a point to mention the elevator jack screw and based on oh not not the elevator, the uh, flap jack screw. Uh, yeah. that uh, extends and retracts the flaps was found in a position consistent with retracted flaps. And I'm, that made me scratch my head. I'm thinking, well, I could see maybe having flaps retracted to have less drag, but on the other hand, your stall speed goes up quite a bit um, when you don't have your flaps extended. So I, Yeah, I, I don't know what the B-17's flap configuration should be, particularly on three engines. So... Uh, yeah, but it would seem to be odd to have a clean wing when you've got flaps available. Right. Uh, and um, the other thing is that it was it on a right hand circuit, so he's flying into dead engines. Yes, the, certainly the number four and possibly the number three as well. So that's going to make give him handling problems on the final turn, isn't it? Now I can see why they may have decided to do that direction because on that departure runway six. Uh, the departure procedure is to immediately turn to a heading, I think, of 075, and I believe the tower gave them a 095 heading um, at some point. But uh, So maybe they thought, well, I'm already turned this direction, so I'll just keep it coming yeah. around this way. I don't know what, yeah. what he was thinking um, regarding you know, making his turns. And as you mentioned, you know, the, probably the, the worst thing to do is to turn into the dead engine slash engines. So yeah. and for those who uh, who don't fly multi-engine aircraft, um, when you've got a, uh, engines out on one side of the aircraft, you try to avoid turning into the side with the failed engines because uh, the power from the live engines which you're using can give you a yawing and therefore rolling moment into that dead engine as well into that dead side. So not only are you turning uh, into the dead side, where if you need to put extra power on to 
keep your speed up, you're going to make the aircraft roll even harder into that dead side as well. So it really becomes a bit of a vicious circle. Uh, so wherever possible, uh, you with failed engines, you try and make all your turns into the live engines so that if you put more power on, it straightens the airplane up, doesn't apply more bang. Right. Yeah, I, I, I'm hoping that they uh, will be able to, with the information they've gathered, gathered so far, be able to come up with uh, an idea of exactly what happened here. But uh, a lot of interesting factual information at this point, but I'm not really sure what to do with it. Yeah, uh, exactly right. And and uh, you know, in my heart, I'm I'm desperately hoping that this fine crew, uh, who were who were very well respected and deeply mourned in their loss. Uh, aren't found to have contributed uh, towards the accident. I hope it's just a mechanical failure and that they're held uh, blameless, but we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Okay. I think now it's time to take a little break. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. And don't hate me for singing this. Okay, it's I our... I see you dancing around in a big ball gown <laughs> next time you do this, please. Okay, I'll see what I can do. Uh, depends on how much space it takes up in my... It is from The King and I, is it? It is, yes. And uh, so Dana, instead of Dana singing this time, I just watched him mouth the words, <laughs> but it's still a lot of fun. Thanks, so um, thanks for bearing with us on that. Um, what has been going on with y'all? Uh, Captain Nick, let's start with you. Uh, well, uh, luckily not a lot, so we can keep this uh, relatively short and sweet. Um, I've finished up the last of my uh Dambusters Plain Tales, which is today, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed this. I've already got the subject for the next one, so that's cool, uh, and all to do with flying over a small body of water. And um, what else did I do? Uh, I, interestingly, now, my entire uh, career uh, since I left the uh, Royal Air Force and became a civil airline pilot, I've worn a pair of these glasses. So um, after a while wearing them, I thought, I don't if I could wear contact lenses. And I was kind of put off the idea by my um, flight surgeon, you would call him, but by my AME, um, because he said, well, they're not ideal. Uh, they dry out a lot in an aircraft, so they, uh, you know, they become uncomfortable to wear. You've got to have the glasses anyway because you've got to have a backup system, and if they fall out on the approach, it can all get a bit embarrassing, blah, blah, blah. So I, I looked at it and thought, nah, okay, I'll wait till I retire. So now I've retired, I can take a look at contacts. So I was in today looking at contact lenses, and I wanted some that were that looked like tiger's eyes, or I thought perhaps I could get some purple ones or some <laughs> black ones, you know. But sadly, they don't come like that. That's Aww. very disappointing. Apparently, that's just for movie people. But uh, anyway, I, <laughs> I messed about with them for several hours. And uh, eventually, the lady said, your eyes are getting too dry. We'll have to try again next week. So uh, I'm still with my old glasses. But I'm trying to see how contacts. I get on with contacts, which is kind of new and not something I was able to do when I was a, an airline pilot. Uh, in the meantime, uh, what else has been going on? 
nothing really other than uh, coming up next week. Uh, depends on when we have the show, but it'll probably be just after uh, my old flying course that I uh, was on when we I joined the Air Force and learned to fly. We're trying to get some of uh, number four course together. Now, they just redesigned the flying training system, and uh, they'd started again with number one, and uh, ours was the fourth of the new system of uh, flying training. So uh, I was on four course, and we all had a fine time uh, learning to fly at RAF Linton on Ooze. And uh, that's a river, a river called the Ooze. Oh, okay. That doesn't sound good to me. A river called Ooze. Ooh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, want to, you want to go swimming in the Ooze River? Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> uh, it's in the middle of Yorkshire. And uh, the lovely thing about it was that it was very close to York, the town, which is a lovely town, full of great uh, old pubs, lovely beers in that area. They make some fantastic, the Theakston's Brewery, which makes some superb ales uh, is around there. And the other great thing about it was um, the uh, nursing college at York and a Ripon Teacher Training College. So whenever we were having a big party in the mess, we used to put out a general invite to the young ladies of uh, Ripon uh, Teacher Training College and the uh, nursing college uh, to come and join us, which was always a hoot and a roll. Thank you, ladies. <laughs> and if you are still around, or definitely won't be listening to this, but uh, if you're going to think send up send in any memories, can you just uh, use my private email because I don't want the wife to see. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pilot Pip says that uh, there's a great ooze that runs right out of his nose. Oh, I'm sorry, no, uh, <laughs> right by my house. I'm sorry, I misread that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so that's me, short and sweet. Awesome. Hey, regarding the uh, contact lenses, so I was thinking that uh, that might be an option for me at some point, but uh, you, you, it doesn't correct for. Well, I guess there are some models or some types of uh, of contact lenses that actually are sort of like progressive lenses, right? So you can even see yes, things close. Are. Okay, absolutely. Yes, they, they can they can go from reading through to uh, distance vision. They probably don't give you quite as much acuity as glasses, mm -hmm. uh, and um, you know they have to be tailored to you. But uh, and they're not cheap. It's like buying a pair of glasses every year, I would say, on mm -hmm. average. You, so, not the cheapest option. But uh, if you don't wear them every day, you can make uh, you know them last quite a while, and they become obviously a little cheaper. Or you can uh, get a one you wear every just for two weeks and throw away, or some mm -hmm. one you wear for a month and throw away. So that can be a cheaper option. So it, it, there are lots of variables here. To, I'm so glad I'm able now to give it a go. Well, I look forward to hearing how that goes. Mm, it'd be nice not to have to clamp these on my head all the time. Mm -hmm. I hear you. Okay. Mm. Um, I poke my finger in my eye every morning. <laughs> yeah, I know. We, we're looking at Dana, and he doesn't have glasses yet. All right. I actually went and had my FA physical. Ah. And you ran right into the door because you didn't see it. I couldn't <laughs> see it. Couldn't see a darn thing. You've memorized the eye chart, haven't you? No, I have not, actually. I, I had my funny glasses on, though, so that's why I couldn't see anything. <laughs> What was it? I walked in with my my blacked out my blacked out glasses and and my walking stick into the medical examiner's office. 
what was the uh what was the 2020 uh, distant uh, chart f p o t e c i think F-O-T-E-C, i have no idea i think not that i uh, ever I, memorized it <laughs> yeah not that you ever did um dana what have you been up to sir well, I uh, finished my trip uh, up to Toronto. I forget where else I went. I can never remember where yeah, I went. We, so. uh, you were there when we recorded last uh, week. Yeah, show. last week. Uh, so Toronto, then um, I, well, let me look it up real quick and I can tell you what I did. Uh, so yeah, I had uh, a deadhead to Jacksonville after I did my long day of uh, Grand Rapids and back and then deadhead to Jacksonville. I was a bit nervous when I came through. Uh, security the following morning i was hoping when i went through known crew member that I wouldn't get that randomizer which is very active these days um because i don't want to have to explain the reason why i had four bottles you know they of- probably wouldn't have said a thing i mean i can't tell you how many times i've had like two six packs of beer in my rollerboard going through I- security <clears throat> these days though especially with what happened in minneapolis i'm talking I- about just recently yeah, I know, but I, I just, I don't want to have to explain myself, especially being a pilot and having alcohol. But I'm just telling because, you, I do it all the time, and okay, they don't, well, they don't say a thing about it, really. You're a lucky man. No. Yeah. No, it's just. Because yeah, they would probably pull okay. my bag apart. Sir, have you had anything to drink? No, I had 11-hour layover. Doesn't mean you didn't have anything to drink. I didn't have anything to drink. Promise you. They're all sealed. So, yeah, no, I, I went up through uh, Toronto okay. and. And once you go through uh, immigrations in uh, Toronto, because we have U.S. immigrations and customs, uh, then you go through duty-free. And uh, they had just, the lady said to me, you are the luckiest guy right now. I said, why? She says, because we just got that shipment of Crown Limited in. It's the only place I know I can get it. Mm-hmm. I said, so, oh, that's awesome. I had two bottles. I said, how many bottles can I buy? And I'm thinking about how much room I have in my bag. Mm-hmm. And she said, uh, well, you can take as many as you want, really, because you're already through. I said, okay, well, how about four? So I rolled four into my bag and made it work. So now I'm down to about two bottles since a couple days ago. A couple <laughs> days ago. Uh, because I, I'm giving two away to friends. Actually. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> I am. <laughs> okay. Um, they're both uh, uh, lovers of that. So uh, anyway, so uh, uneventful rest of the trip. I had uh, uh, my medical, as I had to mention, on Monday morning. Um, and not an issue whatsoever. Blood pressure was good. The eye test was good without me cheating. Um, cause I don't, I have, do not have that thing memorized. Although most people do, I do still have 2020. Um, very fortunate for that at my old age. And, uh, then went to a, uh, Acme event, um, that was a two day, uh, informational, um, information about what's going on with the company, uh, strategically worldwide and how things are going and actually they had most of our uh, worldwide partner uh, airlines were represented there so it was interesting to meet a lot of our uh, partner airlines including uh, acme red uh, they had uh, uh, vice president of something he was there talking to the group with the the korean um present and also the Euro Mexico present. So it was, it was very informative. We uh, had a nice little uh, um, shindig that evening, the first evening where they, you know, fed us and the food was fantastic. I actually had lobster rolls in Atlanta and they were very good being a good Boston boy. So if you 
familiar with lobster rolls. That was amazing. Um, and then it was a party all night long. Uh, well, not all night until nine o'clock. They had uh, uh, dancing and, and music. And and unfortunately, uh, yours truly kind of tweaked my back a little bit. So I wasn't out there on the dance floor for change. So I had to keep it low key. And then uh, pretty much that's it. Just been uh, enjoying some time off. Pretty, pretty easy. Well, very good. Good, good, good. Let's see. Um, myself, I picked up a uh, an overtime flying trip on Monday and Tuesday. We were talking about you know the issues with certain airplanes like the 737 and the fact that I'm not really that disappointed that uh, some of these things are going on because it's going to perhaps, possibly, delay the uh, fleet retirement that I'm on because I'd love to be able to retire on this airplane or get close enough where they just tell me, Jeff, just stay home and we'll just go ahead and pay you for the next year or whatever. But uh, another airplane that we seem to having troubles with uh, the C-Series or what we call the A220 now, um, uh, it's, it's, I guess, what would you call it? Uh, it's um, not, I guess, growing pains might be a way to describe uh, some of the issues they've been having with it. And apparently they needed uh, a, a good old trusty rugged mad dog to fly up from Atlanta. Actually, you know, the mad dog crew, I was the captain on it, uh, deadheaded up to Detroit. And uh, the, uh, the mad dog they put us in was, had been there for, I don't know, a day or so, uh, quite a while, just sitting there, not flying and, uh, had, uh, an issue trying to get the APU started. And finally we, uh, we fixed that and, uh, were able to get on our way and fly the passengers that would normally have been flying the a220 to uh from detroit to dallas fort worth and then we laid over there that night and then flew it back uh, the next morning and then deadheaded back home uh, the deadheading part of it not that much fun but it was as i said overtime flying which means that they paid me uh, double our normal rate so i was happy to help in that respect and then uh, normal trip this week. Uh, yesterday we left for a three-day trip and laid over here in Louisville yesterday. And then today was a real easy, uh, nice uh, just to Atlanta and back here to Louisville. And here we are tomorrow. Kind of the same thing. Nice, easy day. Back to Atlanta and then a Greensboro uh, turn. Actually, the last leg I think is a deadhead. Anyway, um, so uh, yesterday I was able to meet up. And I think I mentioned it on the last show where we, one of these days I'm here in Louisville that we were going to try to do a Louisville meetup and Greg Peterson from, uh, we call him, um, uh, Greg, big ass Peterson. <laughs> he works at the, uh, he was the guy that gave us the, all the swag and also the tour of the very large donkey fan, uh, company. And, uh, we, <laughs> yep. Uh, Nick is on the video, uh, holding up his, his fanny. <laughs> Because that's the name of the little stuffed donkey. And anyway, uh, just watch the video. You'll understand. So uh, Greg um, lives in Lexington or the Lexington area, and he knew I was going to be here in Louisville. So he said, why don't we uh, meet up at the, uh, let's see, what was it called? Against the Grain Brewery and Smokehouse. And it was just Greg and I, which is nice. Um, you know, it would have been nice to have more folks show up, but it was kind of a last minute thing. But uh, we enjoyed um, uh, the, the, the brisket and the beer and our company together. So there you go. 
thanks, Greg, for uh, meeting up with me and driving the hour and 20 minute whatever drive over. Uh, really enjoyed it. And that's about it. Can't think of anything else that happened that was interesting at all in my life. And I'm looking at the, oh, I will be in Toronto on the 5th of November. And Liz suggested that we do some kind of a meetup there in the uh, Toronto area. So uh, she says to tell you that the details will be on Slack. So once we start uh, kind of hammering out what we're what we're going to do, where we're going to go, and all that kind of stuff, uh, we'll let you know, and uh, I'll mention it on the show as well. So that is about all that I can think of. If you want to see what's going on in the Airline Pilot Guy community, uh, take a look at the APG community calendar, which is uh, available if you're a member of our Slack team, or uh, just find it on our great website, airlinepilotguy.com slash calendar. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee, I love tea, I love the APG community, coffee and tea, and the Java and me, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, the Coffee Fund is your way, dear listener, to support the show financially. And you can do that by heading over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee where you'll find out that there are a couple of different ways to join the coffee fund cadre and that is number one the classic method which is basically our paypal contribution page and since the last episode a recurring donation from terry Lou and a one-time contribution greg you didn't need to do that greg big peterson <laughs> sorry big donkey peterson uh gave us a nice contribution as well so thank you greg and Terry for that. If you want to become a patron of the show, you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash airlinepilotguy and you can pledge a certain amount per episode. You can also specify a maximum amount per month so that you don't go broke. And information about all this stuff is over on the website airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. And trust me, You'll be glad you joined this great group of folks. And we will too. Captain, incoming message. Nick. Oh, yeah, sorry. I just wanted to mention that I'm drinking tonight uh, Chilton Monument Gold Pale Ale, and my great thanks to a Mr. Neville of the Bounds, who uh, provided this lovely beer for me tonight when he last visited my establishment and bought with him a whole crate of it. And I'm slowly getting through it. It's absolutely delicious. So many thanks, Nev. Sir, Sorry, Neville, Sir Neville of the Bounds Brewery. Uh, exactly, yes. <laughs> and nevtech.com. Yes, very clever man. Yes, he is. And great provider of beer. Oh, you got to love that. All right. Uh, let's start with the first item in the feedback folder. Or no, wait, what, what were we going to do? We were going to maybe do the uh, plain tale first. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yes. That's, uh, yeah. Yes, we, we need uh, the, the sick doctor to uh, 
deal with these first few, don't we? Right, yeah. She's going to have to uh, be here for the first two items. and She's in charge of sick. You know what? i tell you what. Why don't we do this? Uh, let me do item three and and perhaps number four, and then we'll do the plain tale. And then maybe about that time, uh, Steph will be able to join us. Good idea. We'll see. Okay, number three. Uh, Nick writes, Dear APG crew, Captain Jeff, Dr. Steph, Captain Dana, Captain Nick, and producer Liz. Wow, he's very inclusive. I wanted to reach out and say thank you for the hard work that everyone puts into the APG podcast. I'm a very new listener, only joining in at episode 380, but I am totally hooked and certainly developing APG syndrome. Uh Uh-oh. I have a PPL, and I'm currently enjoying our building whilst studying for my EASA ATPL theory exams and working full-time. I have to make a couple of long car journeys for work each week, and I love listening to the podcast whilst I drive to keep me company. More than anything, it gives me the motivation I need to knuckle down and study each day after work. I have a couple of stories, bits of feedback, which hopefully you and the APG community may find interesting. Oh, it's Nick Herunder. Thank you. Um, who said that? Was that Liz that told us that in the in the background? Um, Yes. Thank you, Liz, the producer. And by the way, I think Nick, is he in our chat room? One of these chat rooms, I think he is. Anyway, um, and as as long as we're kind of taking a pause from Nick's feedback, um, looks like that um, Dr. Steph is on her way home, but predictively, traffic is terrible. Okay, well, we'll... Uh, Hope that uh, she is able to join us soon. Okay, so getting back to Nick Arunders, Arander. Hey, if you're there, Nick, tell us how to pronounce your last name. I really am not sure. Yeah, he's in the Facebook uh, chat room. Okay, yeah, spell it out phonetically for us. Um, when I left university, I spent a great few years working for what we will call Bad Airways, <laughs> whose headquarters is 500 meters uh, northwest of London Heathrow Airport in what used to be their IT department as a software engineer. I think we all know what company that is. I used to work on, amongst other things, crew tracking and crew scheduling, rostering systems, and also the catering systems. During my time at what was the world's favorite airline, I was lucky enough to visit Acme headquarters in Atlanta on a business trip. Man, that place is huge. I was completely taken aback by the sheer size and scale of both Acme's operation and physical footprint of the campus itself. The colleagues I met from Acme were very welcoming and knowledgeable, and I truly did find it a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Certainly on the surface, it seems like an amazing company and institution to be a part of. Sadly, I didn't have time to go to the museum, but that's a great excuse to return. Um, let's see. Oh, this is a, a note to uh, Neville Bound. Speaking of the Sir Neville, Bad Airways and Acme aren't even in the same alliance. I don't think that they even code share. How this visit came about is a long and, quite frankly, boring story about warehouses and IPA. Hopefully, oh, one I like day. stories about IPAs. Yeah, me too. <laughs> now, am I getting that raise? And what does NB stand for? Does that mean that there's something I'm not supposed to be reading while we're doing the show? Oh, no, it just means note. It's a side note. To, oh, side note. Uh, so I don't. Think that I've ever seen that before. I just when I saw NB, I thought of it's Neville. Probably Bell. <laughs> short for some Latin phrase. Um, uh, Nick, tell us what that means. <laughs> uh, it's it's it means note well. NB from the Latin uh, roots notare. 
Oh. to note. And not Neville Bounds? Are you sure? Re- yeah. Recheck that. <laughs> well, unless Neville was a Roman, I don't know. Perhaps he yeah. has Roman roots. Erander. That's the way. It's, so, oh, I would never have thought to pronounce that a long E. Other people say it might be Nota Bene. Nota Bene. Nota yeah. Bene. That's what Andrea Fox and John McElroy are saying. Anyway, um, hopefully this is back. This is uh, <laughs> Nick again. This is going all over the place. I apologize. <laughs> um, hopefully one day I'll make it to a meetup and I can regale it over a few IPAs. But in the meantime, uh, we'll move swiftly on. Well, we, we actually will not, Nick, because I'm at the uh, at the controls here, sadly. Okay, secondly, way, have your lights gone out? You, yeah, you're, something happened. It's all you're very really gloomy there. Oh well, um, the sun is is going down. Um, I guess it's only four thirty here, though. Uh, the, the sun stays still. The Earth rotates. I hate to break this to you. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the Earth has rotated uh, to a point where I guess the sun is not coming through the window as strongly as uh, as it That's was right. before. You, you've just turned to a little pink blob, but you're a very Handsome looking, oh, very thank you. pink bob. <laughs> well, let's see here. Let me see if I can remedy the situation. No, you don't, don't unzip. <laughs> uh, keep it, keep it down, Jeff. <laughs> keep it down. Uh, family show, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, Nick, you, you you did mention uh, while Jeff is over there t- remedying his situation. Uh, the uh, one thing I did forget to mention about my past week is uh, part of that uh, whole Acme uh, uh, presentation. We got to have lunch in the um, in the museum, and it was amazing. Uh, first time I've been in there when it wasn't overrun with everybody. Because last couple times I've actually been in the museum was the hops in the hangar, so that was. Highly enjoyable. I think the last time Hops in the Hangar happened is when we all got together there. Uh, so it was a much more uh, a relaxed atmosphere. And uh, anybody that listens to the podcast, I would highly recommend going to the Acme Museum. It's uh, quite an amazing, uh, amazing um, uh, museum. And you have full access to a, <laughs> I see what's going on over there. <laughs> He's like dancing and you know, all types of things. And, Crooked uh, camera. And... So, anyways, back to the Acme Museum. Uh, you know, 747 they can get into uh, up, upstairs as well. Uh, they've uh, taken out the floor on the main level to show uh, some pretty interesting details. And uh, the uh, you can access the full 767, the spirit of Acme, uh, and uh, sit in there for its old first-class seats and Excellent. see the... Seven seven six seven cockpit. So, uh, awesome, awesome displays there. So, just taking off on what Nick was uh, was uh, talking about, and Jeff is now back, and oh, we good can continue. Oh, <laughs> I was just looking. I was just. Right be, I was just getting some uh, airtime going for you there, Jeff. Thank you. Yeah, it was looking like um, I was experiencing a um, <laughs> an earthquake here in Louisville. I don't know if they ever even get earthquakes here or not, but. Anyway, so there we go. Hopefully that's a little bit better. Right. Um, uh-huh. You guys are going to really have to help me out with this. Uh, there, he talks about something, um, well, in this paragraph. So here we go. I'm going to continue. Secondly, I still work full-time in IT while studying and funding my ATPL. And I guess what I came across whilst doing some training in 
DevOps, uh, OODA Loops. Yay! Well done. What, what what was that again? I'm not sure I remember what what that's in the reference. The OODA Loop was a uh, a loop of logic that uh, John Boyd oh. invented. Uh, so um, I'm trying to remember what it stands for because I I never learned it. Uh, I've never been taught it. But it's uh, someone's going to uh, remind me in a minute. I, I could look it up. But uh, needless to say, it's uh, it's kind of observe, uh, orientate, uh, decide, and then act. So it, and then you you go back to the origin, the beginning again, and start the loop again. So it's it's creating, it's observing what's going on around you, orientating yourself. Uh, Deciding what your action is going to be, and then taking an action and starting again. But uh, um, yeah, I think that's basically it. And John Lloyd, uh, John Boyd, sorry, was the in, oh, okay. uh, uh, subject of one of my plain tales. Colonel Colonel John Boyd. Yeah, and I I don't know anything about OODA loops, but I do know something about Fruit Loops. Yeah, he invented those two. Oh, did he? Wow, he yeah. was quite a man. He was very clever. <laughs> very clever. I listened to Captain Nick's plain tale on Colonel John Boyd a few days previously, and it was a pleasant surprise to see that OODA loops are indeed part of the foundations of the theory DevOps in IT practice. And now, is that developer operations? Is that what the development operations development. Have to talk, okay. yeah. Oh, yeah. As much as I would love to say I have a newfound interest in my present occupation, I very much look forward to the day where I can call myself a professional pilot. Whether that's an airline FO or flying questionable cargo in equally equally questionable countries, <laughs> I guess they're looking for some new pilots at the Ukraine. Oh, never mind. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed following Doctor Steph's travels on Twitter in her quest to go to all fifty states before her father. Congratulations on making it to all fifty. I just wanted to say that it totally counts if you're only ever been to an airport or near in that state. I had some great non-rev trips, which took me interesting routings. I totally count South Korea as a country I visited, even though I just went through passport control and got my password, uh, passport stamped and baggage claim only to go back upstairs and check in at CX and fly to Hong Kong, HKG. What's CX? Uh, CX, Cathay Pacific. Oh, okay. Thank you. The airline is their two-letter code. Ah, okay. Finally, to Captain Nick, like you, I learned to fly as an air cadet. I'm currently a volunteer with the organization, and I have no doubt your experiences and plain tales would be a great source of interest and also inspiration to young people who have an interest in aviation. If you ever had any spare time you were and you were willing to give the air, uh, no, I'm sorry. If you ever had any spare time you were willing to give to the air cadets, I would be glad to put you in touch with friends and colleagues in your neck of the woods. Beards are now acceptable in the RAF, much to my local not-so-friendly warrant officer's unamusement. <laughs> That's yeah. very kind, Nick, but uh, I actually uh, served for seven years as a civilian instructor with my local squadron down there in Petersfield, uh, So, and also uh, down at Borden. So I, I'm well acquainted with my local units, but uh, I think after a while you just get a bit uh, too old to relate easily to the youngsters, and I always think they need uh, to have people who are a bit closer in age. Uh, and I have many other hobbies now, so I'd, I'd love to uh, give them a time, but I think I've done my bit, but thanks for the suggestion. Uh, translation, he's not interested. 
um, just kidding. Yeah, but I just just uh, I know where these where the yeah. units are if I have any spare time. So I wish I knew where, knew where my unit was. Yeah, okay. Well. Um, I'll round off with a question to each of the APG crew. What is your favorite destination on your respective airlines network? Or in Dr. Steph's case, what is your favorite destination, period? And thank you again for all the great work you do in the aid of heavier-than-air flight. Keep the blue side up and tailwind strong. Yours ever from what will hopefully be one day also Captain Nick. Very good. Very nice. Sorry it took so long. Wow, that took a long time, Nick, to read that feedback. And it wasn't your fault at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to sound really weird coming out in the podcast because Jeff's going to have trouble splicing that one together. Yeah, I might just leave it as is. Who knows? I, I would. I'd leave it just as it is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, favorite destination. Favorite destination. Hmm. Yeah. Steph says she, <laughs> Steph, even though she's in traffic, she is participating and she says she does not have a favorite. Um, I'm not sure I do either, honestly. Um, how about you, Dana? Atlanta. <laughs> Just home. <laughs> home. Well, yeah, maybe that's mine too. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, in, in all seriousness, uh, we don't go there anymore, and it's not because I'm from that city. Uh, but, and I have to say, you know, I have to honestly precurse that with that I don't fly international. Uh, I'm sure some of the international cities would be pretty cool. But, you know, because Boston really is a, a fantastic overnight, uh, the location that we stay, the city is fun. There's lots of things to do. It's more of a European city than it is an American city in a lot of regards. Um, it's uh, it, it's just one of the more unique uh, locations, I think. It's not, And I'm not saying that because I'm from Boston. But you talk to a lot of our uh, crew, crews out there, and they'll they probably say it's it's probably in their top five for sure. Um, Jeff's been there quite a bit. I I mean I don't know. We all have our different ways of uh, of defining what we like as far as overnights, and and I'm thinking overnight. I mean as far as favorite cities flying, completely different list. I mean I there's I can list off cities I prefer not to fly to, um, and overnights I prefer not, but. Uh, a lot quicker than I can my favorites. Cape Town. I always used to love Cape Town. I mean, the flights were horrid because uh, we would inevitably, because it was such a popular place and we usually got a lot of time off down there, we inevitably have a lot of companions. So the cabin crew would invite boyfriends and husbands and the pilots would want to take wives, etc. Uh, and uh, it, there was sort of a lot of staff passengers trying to get on, the, and the flights were pretty crammed. Um, you could often get there, and then there would be an awful bun flight trying to get everyone home. From the captain's point of view, uh, jump seats were always at a premium, and that was always hard to turn. You know, say to people, "I can't, I can't invent seats. No, you can't sit on the toilet for takeoff and this sort of thing." You know, um, the other problem was there aren't very many good diversions around Cape Town, um, so you know you always a bit concerned about any uh, bad weather, but the weather factor usually now was pretty good. It was a very long flight. Um, but the actual destination, gorgeous. If you like wine, you like beaches, you like uh, inexpert, fabulous food, you like diving with sh- great white sharks, all that kind of stuff. It was all down there. It was absolutely fabulous. The Table Mountain, always superb. Uh, you know, it was just a fantastic place. Diving but, uh, with great white sharks? 
Yeah, if you wanted to. Yes, we used to dine with them, uh, eat, eat a few tuna heads with them. Uh, no, I went great white shark diving in a shark cage, uh, you know, off the coast near one of those islands where there are a lot of seals. And uh, the, the great whites come there in, in numbers and they will uh, come in right into the boat and float by and you can be down there in the shark cage watching them. Well, you can reach out and touch them if you're lucky or keen. Yeah. Sounds interesting. Yep. I do love the Pacific Northwest of the United States and also um, the province of British Columbia. I think it's very beautiful. I think it's one of the prettiest parts of uh, the United States and Canada, in my opinion. Oh. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, we don't. Uh, it used to be a destination I got to quite often when I was flying the 727 back in the 90s. Uh, went to uh, Vancouver quite, quite often, actually. But uh, haven't been there in many, many years. But shame. My brother yeah. lives there. Oh, yeah, that is a shame. It's a shame that he lives there. No, it's a oh, shame okay. <laughs> that you don't go there anymore because my brother lives there, <laughs> and you two couldn't meet. I knew what you meant. I was trying to be funny. Yeah. Okay, um, give me a hint next time so I can remember. To yeah, I know. So how, how can I tell <laughs> when you're trying to be funny? <laughs> like I was. Talking to a flight attendant, I was joking around, and I was having to explain my joke, and I said, yeah, you know, unfortunately, when you have to explain your joke, it's not really funny. No. <laughs> oh, well. Um, item four from RC Pilot. Um, hello, APG crew. I got I go by the nickname RC Pilot, if you don't mind. No, he doesn't. He didn't put any kind of expression in that. I just read it that way, if you don't mind. A little bit but a little about myself. I found your show about the 345-ish mark. And I've been keeping up with your show ever since. I'm also working my way backwards through the old episodes, currently at 166. Am I a little, am I a little cracked in the head? Yes, you are, because you're listening to our show. Um, I also fly RC helicopters, radio controlled, in my free time. See attached photo. He gave us a photo of a very nice looking uh, radio controlled helicopter. And... Let's see, getting back up here. Being that machines like mine can cost $2,500 to $3,000 US dollars, you can imagine that hobbyists like me are not the one, the ones in the news shutting down airports. Yeah, I'll move on before I start ranting. I do have dreams of getting my private pilot certificate someday. By the way, Jeff, you're the one that taught me not to say pilot license. Yeah, but we still, I actually have to stop myself from saying a private pilot license. Uh, actually... Here in the States, it's a certificate, but who cares? Uh, now on to the news. On Friday, October 4, uh, Piper PA-46 landed in the Susquehanna River just short of the Harrisburg International Airport due to an engine failure. I looked on the Aviation Herald website, but I didn't see it listed. And I, I wrote back to him and said, well, the reason why you don't see it on Aviation Herald is because they only uh, cover, our um, Simon only covers uh, Part 121 commercial airline kind of stuff, uh, not, um, private aviation like this. Um, and let's see. Oh, he said, have the going green song ready. Okay. I, I'm getting it ready. Is it? <laughs> uh, here it is. We're going green. We're going green. We're gonna take, take care of the earth. earth. We're, We're going, going green. green. 
All right. Uh, in episode 166, you talked about it, uh, about airport beacons and the colors. That, what? Yeah, 166. I don't, is that right? What? <laughs> I wasn't even on the show. That's why it was yeah. so good. Okay. <laughs> That's why it was much better. Yeah. Uh, when yeah. you and I weren't on the show. Yep. Okay. Was, was Steph even here yet? I don't yeah. think so. Mm, was she? I don't remember. I don't. That'd be really Steph, close. I can't remember which one she uh, was on first. Um, anywho, uh, you talked about airport beacons and the colors they use, white and green. You stated you don't know why they picked those colors. I have a hunch that they picked green because green is easier for your eyes to see without losing your night vision. I use a bright green flashlight, not a laser, for fox hunting at night, and I find that my eyes don't have to adjust as much as they would with a red light. I might be a miles off on my assumption, but that's just my two cents. Thanks for keeping me entertained, RC Pilot. And he said, P.S., you need to get the Wikipedia back again sometime. So he and the old curmudgeon, he had a lot of dots there. That's why I kind of paused. Uh, can trade Boeing versus Scarabus barbs again. Sorry, Nick. I can't help it. <laughs> so well, going to this article about the airplane that crashed in the Susquehanna River, um, like... <laughs> You can see Three Mile Island in the uh, in the background. I don't know if you're familiar with the Three Mile Island incident, uh, uh, Nick. But um, uh, it was a nuclear uh, meltdown yes. incident, wasn't it? Yeah. So it was a. I don't know if it was a complete meltdown, uh, but it, they had to shut down the reactor because of, I guess it was going to kind of be like a Chernobyl kind of thing. But they stopped it before it did. But it did leak some radioactive. Um, what would you call it? Air radiation. Radioactive, into, yeah, radioactive radiation, radioactive aviation, uh, uh, radiation, radioactive isotopes <laughs> there, whatever. Um, anywho, um, and they, uh, well, you can look at this in the show notes and you see the airplane in the, uh, in the river. And I guess it was kind of shallow where it ended up, uh, coming to a rest. It was, as, a, as you mentioned, a PA 46. What was his question about that? Or maybe he just wanted to, um, you just talked about out to it. it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, looked like they just lost power and couldn't make it back to the uh, Harrisburg International Airport. And I don't know what else to say about that. I, I see that they were transported transported to the Hershey Medical Center. Now, if you're being transported transported to the Hershey Medical Center, then you would probably be a skinny person because when you leave the medical center, being a it is Hershey. You probably eat all that chocolate and be fat. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I thought my bad, my jokes were bad. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't go there. That's for sure. I wouldn't fit. I would fit in the door going in. I would not fit out in the door coming out. I was going to say something else, but it was, it, it's, this is a, um, family show, Uh family show, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, family show. Okay, well, thanks, uh, RC Pilot, for your um, first-time feedback, and and I'm sorry about the syndrome, but uh, keep listening, and maybe someday we'll come up with a cure. And so, yes. night vision colors. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Now, I always uh, remember being told by the aviation doctors that used to lecture us when we were down at uh, North Lufthansa that um, a red light was very good for uh, maintaining night vision because uh, it's at the top end of the spectrum uh, and uh, you'll find 
you know, that on a submarine or something, uh, they will always turn the lights to red before uh, they uh, go up onto the uh, deck uh, to, what do they call that, conning tower, uh, at night so that their eyes can get adjusted to uh, good night vision. And then they go up and they, they don't find themselves unable to see anything because it's very bright. And a color which you see very easily uh, at night uh, is green. Uh, and the old joke was, so, you know, if you're going to jump out of an airplane at night, uh, the last color you see uh, is a bright green light. So it immediately destroys your night vision just as you leap out of the airplane. <laughs> um, now, I'm actually reading uh, a bit here on uh, Wikipedia that uh, says that um, uh, green is used, of course, in low vision uh, goggles and things. That maybe is that your eyes are sensitive to it and they want to keep a color that, or that keep the intensity of the um, night vision goggle uh, display down to an absolute minimum. So because your eyes are sensitive to green, that's a good color to choose. Uh, but um, you'd have to turn red light up quite bright to be able to see it if everything was on your NVGs were colored green. But uh, I always understood that uh, green is easy to see and red is uh, one that preserves your night vision. That's what I was always told as well. You know, the Roy G. Biv model of the, of the uh, colors in the spectrum, uh, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. And I think that uh, red is has the least amount of energy. Green seems to be like right in the middle of that spectrum. Yeah. And then, of course, as you mentioned, the violet is going to be the the brightest, I think. Except, well, that's the bottom end, the other, other end. But, oh. Uh, yep. Apparently, blue green is uh, is the one of the colors that are easy easiest to see. Oh, okay. In that area, but uh, well, obviously, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Oh no, I think it's just the ones that are at the edge of the spectrum. Yeah, are the ones that's the limit of your vision. So, if you want to go down to the purple, you're reaching the limit of your ability to detect. So, it's not mm -hmm. ideal. I would say. Okay. It's funny when I hear you guys talking about this because the colors of the spectrum when you're scuba diving. Uh, the first colors you lose are the red, the yellows, and the oranges. And then, you know, as you descend, the blues uh, and, and greens are, are predominant. And then, of course, as you go through the spectrum looking further deeper, uh, sunlight's more absorb absorbed. And then, of course, the blues and then into purples and then obviously black, the abyss. So it's well, interesting how it all correlates. Oh, it does, because I guess uh, the shorter wavelengths are filtered out, and the shorter wavelengths are the reds and oranges and yellows, and the longer wavelengths penetrate for deeper. So that brings in all the blues. Yep. So it's Very interesting cool. how that there's a correlation there. I love That's the reason I'm even talking about it. Do doom do doom. I love the blues. All right. Guess what time it is? Plain tail. Yes. Time Wait. for the old pilot's plane tales. Here we go. The last installment of Après moi le déluge. Part four. The old pilot's plane tales. Après moi le déluge. Part four. This is London. The Air Ministry have just issued the following communicate. In the early hours of this morning, a force of Lancasters of Bomber Command, led by Wing Commander G.P. Gibson, DSO, DFC, 
attacked with mines the dams of the Myrna and Sauber reservoirs. These control two-thirds of the water storage capacity... It was the night before the big show, and Wing Commander Guy Gibson, squadron commander of 617 Squadron, was heading to bed when he got the bad news. Look here, Guy. I'm awfully sorry, but your dog has been killed. He's just been run over by a car outside the camp. Gibson went back to his room on the eve of this operation with his dog, the squadron mascot, gone. He was alone, looking at the old scratch marks on the door and feeling very depressed. The preparation for this attack had been intense, and this was just another thing to worry about. Gibson was already troubled by intense pain in one of his feet, an attack of gout, but he couldn't let anything distract him now. There was too much at stake. The next day, the 16th of May, recce aircraft overflew the dams and they looked unchanged. Met aircraft had flown well out over the Atlantic to see what weather was coming towards Germany and the reports were also good. The tannoy sounded. All crews of number 617 Squadron report to the briefing room immediately. The crews were to be finally briefed about their targets. They came in hushed, having waited two and a half months to find out about the attack. 133 young men, old-looking and careworn despite their age, but experts, beautifully trained, and each one of them knew his job. Wallace stood and quietly explained about the principles of the bouncing bomb and how it could defeat the enormous dams they were to attack. He told them that it was not going to be easy, and everyone understood what he was trying to say. At the same time, they were relieved to know, at last, what they were going to attack. This was not going to be too bad, they thought. That afternoon, everyone tested their aircraft, and there were tractors driving around carrying the big upkeep mines which were to be fitted to the lakes. The damage done during the dress rehearsals was being rapidly repaired, a new turret here, replacement fins and elevators there. The death of Gibson's dog was kept quiet, as it might be felt as a bad omen. But Guy asked Chiefy Powell to bury him outside his office at midnight. It would be just as they were crossing the enemy coast. Then it was time to brief the operation in detail. The AOC gave the boys a bit of a pep talk. You're off on a raid that will do a tremendous amount of damage, he said. It will become historic. The operation had been kept very secret. Not even Fighter Command or their own group headquarters knew they were operating that night. The first wave would consist of nine aircraft, led by Gibson, and they were going to hit the Mona Dam first, and then move on to the Ida and Sorp Dams in turn. The second wave of five would go straight to the Sorp, whilst also acting as a diversion for the main attack. When they got to the Sorp, they were to fire off very lights and generally create a disturbance. The third wave of five would depart two hours later to provide backup. The crews had time to study models of the dam and look at their routes in detail until they had committed them to memory. Then it was time to grab a meal at the mess, followed by an hour or two of rest. Gibson was tucking into his eggs and bacon when Dingy cracked the well-known joke. Can I have your egg if you don't come back? 
Each crewman was allowed to have an egg after a successful operation, and rationing being very strict, they were a scarce commodity. When it came time to climb into the transport to head out, it was a strange scene. The adjutant recorded... It was not like any ordinary operational scene, all the crews on this occasion being aware of the terrific task confronting them. Gibson's favourite Yank, Flight Lieutenant McCarthy, caused quite a disturbance. He arrived at his aircraft to find it had leaking coolant and came dashing back to the only reserve aircraft. He pulled his parachute by mistake and the white silk was streaming all over the ground trailing behind him. With perspiration dripping off his face, good old Mac ran to his aircraft with everyone behind him trying to fix him up. He got off just in time. At exactly the right moment, Hutch fired a red berry light and all the aircraft started up. The AOC walked Gibson to his machine and wished him the best of luck. An RAF photographer came running up and asked to take a picture. Then... Gibson taxied out onto the runway in formation and stood there, waiting to take off. Someone at the control caravan waved a flag. Throttles were opened up and they were off to Germany. Gibson's navigator spoke. Five minutes to go to the Dutch coast, Skip. At only a hundred feet over the water, the Lanx, flying in tight formations, droned on through the night. Gibson replied... Stand by, front gunner. We're going over. Okay. All lights off. No talking. Here we go. They were a little off course, but luckily the German gunners were half asleep. Flying as low as they dared, a couple of times Gibson had to pull up sharply when someone spotted trees or high-tension wires. They were following the glinting moonlight of a canal, and as they crossed the German frontier, the nav said... We'll be at the target in one hour and a half. They were the only bombers airborne that night, and if found, they were going to receive the undivided attention of the Luftwaffe. The first casualties came from the second wave and were received before they even crossed the Dutch coast. Jeff Rice flew too low over the sea and hit the surface. Amazingly, he bounced back into the air, but his mine had been torn from the belly of his aircraft and he had lost both outboard engines, so he was forced to turn back. Munro's Lancaster was hit by ground fire which destroyed his radio, so he too had to return. With the anti-aircraft gunners now fully awake, the Canadian Vernon Byers aircraft crossed the coast, but was then hit by flak and shot down. Barlow's crew missed spotting some electricity pylons, and hitting them, he also crashed. From that formation, only the American, Joe McCarthy, survived to cross the Netherlands. Now into Germany, again the dangers of low flying were to claim another Lancaster when Dave Astle was blinded by searchlights and hit high-voltage cables. His aircraft reared up and then plunged into a field, bursting into flames. A few seconds later, the mine blew up with a huge explosion. But at last, Gibson had arrived at the dams. The Mona looked squat, heavy and unconquerable in the moonlight, and immediately they were showered by flak from all along its length. 
He circled his formation around, picking up landmarks. Everyone but Astor was there, and at the same time, Joe McCarthy had begun his diversion attack on the salt. Well, boys, said Gibson, I suppose we had better start the ball rolling. They came in down Moon, over the hills, and dived towards the black water. They could see the towers, sluices, everything. Check height, Terry. Speed control, flight engineer. All guns ready, gunners. Coming up, spam. The bomb aimer. With the spotlights on, the calls came. Down, down, down. Steady, steady. They were exactly at 60 feet. The flight engineer was working the throttles, keeping the required speed. Spam turned the bomb fuses on and began sighting on the towers. The flak started up, with tracers swirling towards the Lancaster, some bouncing off the water, kicking it up right in front of them. With gritted teeth, Gibson told his engineer, Stand by to pull me out of the seat if I get hit. The aircraft felt very small as it approached the huge dam. Left, a little more left, steady, steady, steady. Coming up. Tracer flashed past the windows. The dam was getting very close when... Mine gone. Someone said over the radio. Good show, leader. Nice work. The tail gunner was spraying the dam as they passed over it. And then as they circled around, they saw a huge 1,000-foot column of whiteness hanging in the air from where their mine had exploded. The water on the dam looked as if it was being lashed by a gale, and great sheets of it slopped over the wall. Hoppy Hopgood came in next, and Gibson noted that German fighters had arrived in the area, but they were flying too low for them. They couldn't get down to them or see them in the darkness. Hoppy descended over the trees and ran across the water, approaching the dam when a long jet of flame began to stream from his wing. He'd been hit. His mind dropped, but it wasn't aimed well, and it bounced over the damn wall and onto the powerhouse below. Hoppy began to climb to try and get his crew out safely, but then there was a livid flash, and the wing broke away, the aircraft disintegrating as it fell to the ground in a cascade of flaming debris. Moments later, with a tremendous explosion, the mine went up behind the powerhouse. In the aftermath of this, Mickey Martin had to attack, which he did with calm efficiency, and again there was a giant explosion that spewed water high into the air, but still the dam stood, although Gibson felt sure it had shifted back a bit. Mickey had been hit and lost a lot of petrol from one wing, but he seemed okay for the moment. Now it was Mervyn Young's turn, and whilst he lined up, Gibson flew his aircraft across the dam, drawing the flak away and hosing the towers with machine-gun fire. Mervyn's mine hit exactly in the right spot, and he was convinced the dam had gone, but when the water settled, it was still standing, unbroken. Back in the operations room at Scampton, Barnes Wallace sat with his head in his hands. The Air Officer Commanding and the Commander-in-Chief of Bomber Command were pacing up and down, and with each code word that came in signalling a successful drop, they hoped for the best, but as more and more mines hit without a breach, Barnes' head drooped lower and lower. 
Dave Maltby made the next attack, and again the mine worked perfectly, filling the air with spray until it became hard to see what was happening below. Gibson called in the next aircraft, but then someone shouted, I think she's gone! I think she's gone! We came down for a closer look, said Gibson, and there was a huge breach in the dam some hundred yards across, and water was gushing out and rolling into the Ruhr Valley towards the industrial centres of the Third Reich. Now it was all quiet, except for the roar of the water which steamed and hissed its way out of the reservoir through the massive breach. The crews began to shout and scream and act like madmen over the radio, for this was a tremendous sight, a sight which probably no man will ever see again. The whole valley was beginning to fill with fog from the steam of the gushing water, and down in the foggy valley we saw cars speeding along the roads in front of this great wave of water which was chasing them until their headlights disappeared as the water overtook them, wave by wave, the colour of the lights underneath of the water changing from blue to green to purple. The floods raced on, carrying everything with them as they went, viaducts, railways, bridges, anything that stood in their path. The code word for a successful breach of the Mona was sent, and the exhilaration and relief that the crews felt was reflected by great excitement in the operations room as Barnes-Wallace jumped up and danced around. After a few minutes, Gibson took five of his formation and set course for the Ida. Fog was forming, and this was going to be the hardest dam to attack because of the terrain. Time was also getting short as dawn was approaching. Again and again the Lancasters attacked, many times aborting their approach, as it was devilishly difficult getting down from over the high hills to the surface of the water in time. Henry Maudslay's mine hit the dam parapet and exploded beneath him. The aircraft disappeared and everyone thought the worst. In fact, although badly damaged, they had set off for Scampton only to be shot down a while later by Flack from the Rhine town of Emmerich. Dave Shannon made a successful attack, and then, with the final bomb that they had, the Australian, Les Knight, made a perfect attack, and his mind shook the base of the dam. Then, as if a giant hand had punched a hole through cardboard, the whole thing collapsed, and a great mass of water began running down the valley into the castle. Digger was very excited and kept his radio transmitter on by mistake for quite some time. His crew's joyous exclamations were something to be heard, but not repeated. Attacks went ahead on the Sorp Dam, but by its nature it was going to be a difficult job. The bombs cracked but failed to breach the dam. On the return flight, one more Lancaster was lost, that of Dingy Young, who was hit by flak crossing the Dutch coast, and he crashed into the North Sea. This time, his habit of returning home in a dinghy was to fail, as all on board perished. Of the 19 aircraft dispatched, only eight returned, carrying 77 men from the initial 
133 who took off. 53 men died on Operation Chastise, with three surviving by a miracle, only to be taken as prisoners of war. Thirteen of those killed were members of the Royal Canadian Air Force, and two belonged to the Royal Australian Air Force. Of the survivors, 34 were decorated at Buckingham Palace on the 22nd of June, with Gibson awarded the Victoria Cross. There were five distinguished service orders, ten distinguished flying crosses and four bars, two conspicuous gallantry medals, eleven distinguished flying medals and one bar. The raid received enormous publicity at a time when British morale was at a low point, but some believe that it was oversold and its achievements exaggerated. Even Bomber Harris wrote later, I've seen nothing to show that the effort was worthwhile except as a spectacular operation. Time has, however, thrown up a wealth of information about the impact the attack made. The Dambusters raid, referred to by the Germans as the Mona Catastrophe, was, according to Albert Speer, a disaster for us for a number of months and resulted in a 400,000 tonne drop in coal production in May 1943 alone. German reports describe considerable losses of production caused by the lack of water and that many shaft mines, coking plants, smelting works, power stations, fuel plants and armament factories were shut down. The fact that a titanic effort had to be made to repair this damage shows how high a priority the dams were, and it meant resources were shifted from elsewhere. Nowhere was this costlier to the Third Reich than on the beaches of Normandy. Hitler had ordered the construction of massive networks of defence against an Allied invasion, but thousands of workers who should have been toiling in France were now being redirected to the Ruhr to repair the dams. At the time, no raid mounted by so few aircraft had caused such extensive material damage. There's no doubt that the story of the Lancasters of 617 Squadron is utterly remarkable for so many reasons, and the skill and bravery of the crews who flew that night is undiminished by time. I love that music. What is it? The Dam Busters March? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was actually um, written for the movie, uh, but has been adopted by the RAF uh, because it was so good. And uh, it certainly suited the movie and uh, the mission itself. But, of course, the uh, 617 Squadron was to continue to be very famous. Uh, it carried on doing special raids, carrying... Uh, the big bombs that um, Barnes Wallace had invented, uh, the Grand Slam and the Tall Boy, uh, and uh, you know, uh, gained in uh, in skill and always was to be a special squadron and still remains so, because um, of course it's the first squadron in the Royal Air Force to be equipped with the F thirty five B fighters that we have obtained from you guys. Um, 
And uh, at the end of the uh, Dambusters raid, uh, the king uh, awarded the squadron uh, its special motto, uh, after me, the flood, le deluge, le deluge, and uh, its uh, squadron badge, which is, of course, uh, uh, lightning strikes on, on a dam and uh, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it carries a lot of fame with it, that squadron. Well, I have to admit, I don't think I've ever watched the movie, and now I'm definitely going to have to. Well, the movie, as um, my story was, is based very closely to uh, Guy Gibson's uh, um, book, uh, Enemy Coast Ahead, which he was forced to write when he was uh, effectively grounded after the end of this raid, uh, because they thought he was uh, too famous a man now to risk. Uh, but despite that, he managed to get himself back in the air. And of course, we know what happened then. This last operational mission probably, uh, was a tragedy for him. But um uh, yeah, he uh, he was a remarkable man, and uh, a lot of the quotes that I use there are actually taken from that book uh, and from his own words. So, are you saying I should read the book before I see the movie? No, I know you'll find the movie follows the book very closely. Uh, it's actually one of the few. It was it's an Academy Award winner, and uh, is certainly in the UK because we know it so well. Uh, is voted in the top fifty um, uh, best movies ever made. Excellent. Well, I'll look for it. I'm sure it's easily accessible out there on all the different I, places I, uh, you can I watch movies. I purchased it for uh, like three dollars from. Uh, Amazon, I think. Oh, shoot. I, I'm not going to spend that much. Again. And of course, they, they have a nice high definition <laughs> version nowadays. So, yeah, look, not bad. Uh, you'll have to excuse the um, special effects, which are uh, about appropriate for 1955. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, for that time, it was probably pretty, pretty good. But, yeah, uh, they, yeah, they took some real Lancasters out of mothballs and uh, flew them around for the movie. So, they are real Yanks, oh, real um, Lanks, not Yanks. And how many engines are on those? <laughs> Four. <laughs> oh. Hey, got it right. As a face deliberator. I'm not sure anybody would have noticed that that error, uh, but you pointed it out because you are concerned about accuracy as we are here. Well, as long APG. as I can reach my 50%, I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, me too. That was funny. Um, Sean, my first officer, when he's when he's doing the engine start, he verbalizes a lot of things. And when the engine on the... Uh, the, the JT-8D stabilizes at 50%. He goes, 50%. <laughs> Every time he says that, I go, yep, that's what, what, that's what we shoot for on the APG. <laughs> that's very good. Excellent. <laughs> All right. What do you say we go into or do number five, which is some audio feedback from Brian in Tulsa, Oklahoma? Sounds good. All right. Here we go. Take it away, Brian. Hey, APG crew. This is uh, Brian from Tulsa. Just wanted to uh, call in and give you guys an update on uh, what's been going on in my training. But before I do that, I uh, apologize for all the noise in the background. I'm uh, currently at work waiting on an ice machine to, to go through a cleaning cycle. So uh, last time I called in, I was a uh, private pilot, Brian. And uh, now I'm happy to say I'm no longer private pilot, Brian. I am commercial pilot, Brian. From Yay. Tulsa. Yay. That's so, awesome. Uh, the check ride went pretty well. It's uh, the hardest check ride I've done so far, as far as decision making. Um, you know, day one we had to discontinue. We got the uh, oral portion done, uh, but the ceilings never lifted. 
they were kind of right at where we could do it, but it'd be pushing uh, how comfortable I am with uh, ceilings and uh, how the altitude we'd have to maneuver in. So we uh, decided to go back for day two, and day two is not ideal either. The wind was pretty pretty stout for a Cessna 172 on a check ride day. Uh, I think we were at, I don't know, 14 gusting to 20 at some airport reporting stations. Um, so I went ahead and uh, risked it and, and put faith in myself that I could handle it. Uh, and sure enough, I, I did. Um, the only issue I, I really had, and it really wasn't an issue, it was just another challenging decision. On the power off 180, I had uh, quite a bit of headwind. I think, like I said, around 20 knots. So coming off, I was coming down and coming down pretty quickly. And uh, we get to the runway and aiming for the thousand footers. And we're over the numbers and I'm just about to, to touch down. So I lay in all the flaps, try to float it, and it's just not floating. Uh, so at that point, I made the decision to go ahead and go around, uh, which my DPE said was a very good decision. We came around and tried it again and uh, slipped it in and laid it right on a thousand footers. So um, happy to have that box checked and move on to the next one. Currently in multi-engine training uh, towards the end of that. Uh, passed my commercial about two weeks ago now and uh, hopefully we're going for a multi-check ride this weekend. Um, we are trying to get the TPE scheduled. So I uh, just wanted to call in and give you guys an update and uh, thanks for all the hours of entertainment you guys provide for me. Bye. And I thought my refrigerator made a lot of noise. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, I'll try to uh, I'll try to do some work on that audio um, for the audio only version of the show. I can probably remove a lot of that and still and then we can hear Brian a little bit better. But but congratulations, Brian, on uh, getting your commercial. And uh, I, I hear you're working on your multi engine. Uh, perhaps it's I don't know. When did he send this into us? Not not that long ago, I don't believe. So he's probably still working on the multi engine. Uh, great to hear about your progress. Absolutely. Um, it's great news. So keep it going, old chap. Uh, and please don't worry about going to a quiet room to make your recordings, everybody. Uh, we loved hearing those fridges and they're all perfect. I have great ambiance. The ice machine being cleaned. Is that what he said was going on? <laughs> yeah, it's going through its cleaning cycle. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. I mean, Brian, just keep up the good work. Uh, you know, good things come to those who uh, work hard for it. So. Yeah, all in good time. We we need pilots, so keep it up. Persevere. All right. Uh, item six. Private pilot Rolo visiting Betsy's Biscuit Bomber. Greetings, captains and Dr. Steph. Private pilot Rolo here. I apologize ahead of time for the long-winded feedback. I wanted to start by saying that it was a pleasure meeting you all at Osh Blast 2019. I've been a listener now for two years and have enjoyed every episode. So attending Oshkosh for the first time and meeting the four of you in person at the same time was a rewarding experience. I want to highlight a few things that came out of Oshkosh. First, a big thanks to Captain Nick for gifting me his Boeing lanyard. As the old saying goes, one man's trash is another man's treasure. <laughs> <laughs> You're very good. <laughs> it was an honor. Yeah, it wasn't a great sacrifice, Rolo, as you, as you know. Um, it was an honor to accept your gift, sir, and I will cherish it for many years to come. 
Second, thank you, Captain Jeff, for adding the Airline Pilot Guy song at the end of each podcast once again. I'd like to uh, think you did so because I mentioned to you how much I enjoyed and missed the closing song. Well, actually, honestly, it is exactly for that reason that I added it back because you said, man, you got to put that thing back. I, I love that. I went, okay, done. And let's see, where did I leave off here? Um, lastly, I managed to squeeze in the front row of the group picture slash cover of APG 385 to the right of Captain Dana. Overall, Oshkosh was an amazing experience that I hope to repeat in the future and hope to see you all out there once again. On a slightly different topic, a few weeks ago on a flight from the Bay Area down to your old stomping grounds in SoCal's uh, K Kilo uh, Sierra November Alpha, which is Santa Ana, which is John Wayne, Orange County Airport, my girlfriend and I decided to make a pit stop at Paso Robles. Uh, he says pronounced Robles, not Rubbles. Yeah, I know that. And what did I mispronounce I it? That's where Barney Rubble was named after. In yeah, the that's a difference. That's no? Peso oh, okay. Rubbles. <laughs> oh, he was the Mexican Barney yes. Rubble. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Yabba dabba doo. <laughs> and uh, pay a visit to Betsy's Biscuit Bomber. Although I currently live and fly out of the Bay Area, I grew up in Salinas, California, only minutes away from our municipal airport, Kilo Sierra, November Sierra, and a mere 76 nautical miles northwest of Paso. Uh, Paso, yeah. Uh, although I grew up visiting Paso Robles from time to time and had flown into their airport a few times before, I had no idea it was home to such awesome aviation history until Nick Camacho enlightened, enlightened me via this podcast. I wanted to visit Betsy's Biscuit Bomber before she made the journey over the pond for the D-Day celebrations. However, I was unable, so when this opportunity came up, I took it. The flight there was on a Saturday morning, and when we landed our Bug Smasher 172, we taxied right up to the Estrella Warbird Museum. We found the C-47 parked at the edge of Taxiway Foxtrot near the Runway 31 approach. My girlfriend and I walked around it and took a couple of pictures which I've attached to this email, before exploring the rest of the static outdoor displays. On our way back to our aircraft, I spotted one of the crew members, a gentleman named John, who was closing up the C-47. We briefly chatted with him and told him Nick had kept us informed of the aircraft and the crew's journey over to Europe. As we taxied out for departure, we witnessed our very first glider towing evolution. They took off ahead of us, and we sat there and enjoyed every minute of it. That was a great way to end our brief visit to Paso Robles, and I wanted to share it with all of you. Nick Camacho, if you're listening, I hope to run into you during a future visit so I can thank you in person for the great insight. Until next time, wishing the crew endless IPAs, bourbon, and no rowdy passengers and or patients to Dr. Steph. Regards, Private Pilot Rollo. And he, as he said, included a couple of great pictures of he and his girlfriend in front of the uh, uh, Betsy's Biscuit Bomber, the C-47. Really, what a beautiful day there, too. Not a cloud in the sky. Beautiful blue sky. So mm, we'll, we'll put a link to this in the show notes so you can check it out. And uh, it was a pleasure meeting you and your girlfriend as well at Oshkosh. And as I mentioned, yes, you're the reason why that, uh, what is it, No More Airplanes or something, I think was the title of that, uh, from uh, the intrepid... Um, Miami Hick that came up with the with that song for us uh, a little while back. 
And we uh, we miss you, man. Miami Hick, if you're still out there listening. And Miami Rick, or anybody that has a name that starts with Miami. We miss you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm very glad my uh, Boeing lanyard's going to good use. Yeah, I know you miss it. Oh, yeah. Terribly. <laughs> yeah, I can, you can see Precious the tear. To me. He's, he's welling up, and I can see the tears starting <laughs> yeah. to come. Tears yeah, of happiness. So, <laughs> private pilot, private pilot Rolo is, uh, you know, absolute pleasure meeting you as well. And I'm sorry I had to, you had to see it next to me. I mean, the camera was definitely broken after that photograph. So yeah. I apologize for that. But anyways, uh, yeah, great meeting you. Congratulations. Uh, what a beautiful day. Uh, and what a fantastic photograph for you too. So, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Good. All right. Moving on to seven. Someone named Liz sent this in what a what a strange name that is uh hi crew <laughs> since i consider myself a bit of an idiot when it comes to identifying planes i found this article interesting and potentially helpful in helping me become less of an idiot i think others in the apg community might find it useful as well cheers liz and uh, the uh, the guide is an idiot's guide to identifying airliners and it has all kinds of good stuff in there. Um, starts off with the Boeing 2707, the 2707, which never happened. The uh, supersonic transport, SST, that Boeing was um, thinking about uh, building, but never did. And uh, let's see. I don't know. I, I went through. I didn't see the whole thing yet, but uh, I did notice that most of it's pretty accurate. But at one point, they... Say something like, if you see um, engines with the scalloped edge on the back, well, that's a Dreamliner. Well, maybe for a little while that is true, but the newest version of the 747, the Dash 8, uh, have four of these engines that have the scalloped edges uh, along the backside, the backside of the nacelle. So, yeah, for someone who doesn't really know airplanes, they might see those scalloped edges and say, that's a Dreamliner. Um, anyway, it, it is helpful. Another, uh, error that I saw there was the, uh, it says the triple seven. If you see the landing gear that have, uh, let's see, six tires on each truck, uh, that's a triple seven. Uh, but the, if I'm not mistaken, I think the dash 1000 version of the a three fifty also has six tires on each of the main landing gear. Is that correct? correct. Yep. Okay. It's got triple Triple bogeys on each. Uh, yep, on the main, main gear. Yeah, but anyway, overall, I think it's pretty accurate, and it will be very helpful to those of you out there that have trouble um, identifying airplanes. Um, so comically long and skinny. I really <laughs> don't like this bloke. <laughs> yeah, he's I, pulling the A three forty six hundred, one of the most beautifully proportioned aircraft that has ever flown. Mm -hmm. Comically skinny. It's not. It's perfect. <laughs> Twit. Uh, twit. What a twit. It is long and skinny, but it's a in a beautiful way, I think. It is very it's, sleek. It's appropriately uh long. Yes. Well that, hang on. That's what she said. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um anyway, so check it out. Uh we'll have a link to this in the show notes, and you can you can be less of an idiot when it comes to identifying planes. And I think that every journalist out there that's listening, which is probably zero, uh, should mm. probably look at this too, if you care about accuracy, or at least 50% accuracy. Um, item eight, Donnie 
Hi, Jeff and crew. My name is Donnie. I'm 25. I'm a big listener. I owe a great deal to the APG podcast in stopping my procrastination and taking this le- or the leap to begin my PPL. I am not from a wealthy background and have planned since I was young to get a good job and fund my own training. I'm from Belfast, Belfast. I don't know why I said Belfast, and have found my local flight school to be too small, few instructors, and aircraft to go around. I work in financial services and have since got offered a position in Dublin, which will pay much more and in turn accelerate my flight training. I'll be relocating and using the nearest flight school there, which is much bigger. However, the inverse to the pay increase means my new role will be more demanding and take up more of my time, with only weekends available for flying. I was wondering if the crew or anyone, you guys, Dana, Nick, or Steph, knows anyone uh, has become a self-made pilot, juggling personal life, a professional career, and the commitment to flight training. Keen to hear your views and advice. Donnie. Yeah, me. I'm I'm raising my hand, Donnie. I am that guy. That's how I have uh, succeeded and, and made my way up into the the, the uh, majors. And uh, you know, I, at one point, I was working four jobs to put myself uh, through school and and flight training. So I get it. I understand. It's it's a it's a massive juggle. But the uh, the pickings at the end of the rainbow is actually pretty good. Once you get here, it's uh, it's not so bad. So it's going to take a little sacrifice on your part to get uh, get through it. Um, but as long as you keep you 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 oh, hey Julie, <laughs> sorry, Julie's home. <laughs> Julie's home, I guess. <laughs> I'm sorry about the background no noise. Uh, hey, anyways, it's not as bad uh, as the, uh, just, the the ice machine. Uh, cleaning yeah that and in that ambience and everybody knows julie's home and she'll be walking upstairs in the next five minutes checking on me and saying hello anyways um so donnie you know keep keep the grind going uh, you know congratulations on your new position uh in dublin it will and when there's a will there's a way you'll find you'll find some time that you can uh, go ahead and, and keep uh, working towards your your goal and your dream um because if if it's truly what you want to uh, do and truly love, you'll find a way to do it. You, the, you, people always do. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not sure he wants to be a professional pilot. I think he just wants to get his private pilot uh, license. Well, he he says that he's starting, you know, starting out. I don't know if he'll yeah leap to begin my private pilot. Yeah, I don't know. I wasn't, that wasn't clear to me. It's he, not very clear. I mean, if he just wants to be PPL, which is it is in itself a one uh, awesome achievement. To be able to, you know, step foot into an airplane and fly it, uh, that Donnie, to be honest with you, if that's what your 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 uh, destination is, uh, that's easily obtained. Uh, you know, I probably shouldn't say easily. It takes a lot of work, but in regards to reference, uh, becoming a PPL versus being, you know, an ATPL. Um, oh, how would you say that in, in over there in Europe? Yeah, it's probably Nick. That'd be a, probably the same thing, right? An ATPL, a, ATL, a so transport it. pilot's license. That's exactly. So I did say it right. Okay. So if you, you know, it depends on the level you want to get to. But if if it's you, what you're looking for is a PPL, certainly uh, if you're flying a couple weekends, uh, uh, a couple times on the weekends, that shouldn't take you too long to achieve. Just uh, as I said, keep your uh, keep your mind to it, keep grinding at it, and and it, it can be done. Absolutely, can be done. Yes, it can. And I share that with you, Donnie, by the way. I don't come from a wealthy background either. Um, and 
I planned since I was young, young, uh, young kiddo to, uh, to uh, fly for a living and uh, did fund my own training. So you and I have that very much in common and you know, it, it, it takes work, it takes time and dedication. And there she is, Jeff. I know I just added her. I should guess I should pay attention. <laughs> She was backstage for a bit, and I just added her while you were talking. Well, from her lovely cottage by the lake in South Carolina, obviously I don't have the... uh, You can just say from my messy office uh, studio here. From her messy office studio in South Carolina, (laughs) the awesome Dr. Steph. Welcome. So good to see you. I know. I feel like I haven't seen you guys in forever. Sorry about the last time we tried to do this. The internet was yeah, where I had no internet connection. That was just really terrible. You know, know, Doctor Steph, you can control a lot of things in life, especially being a doctor. But there's some things you just can't control. This is true, and the internet's probably one of them. Yeah, and it's it's hard to relinquish that control sometimes, isn't it? I think the pilots understand as well. Mm-hmm. 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 Yep. Not not so much, Jeff. Nah. Jeff's like, I don't care. I'm out of control all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Just let it go. <laughs> I don't care. Uh, yeah. So, hi. How's everyone? Good to see you guys. Good to see you. So, uh, has anything been going on in your life nah. the last? I don't nah. know. Last weekend, maybe. Last weekend. Yeah. Yeah. So last time we talked was a Thursday night. Mm-hmm. Is that right? That's right. Um, yes. Um, or tried to anyway. And I actually ended up going to bed quite early that evening. So even if I had been able to join the show, I would have had to leave a little early because I had a, I was still in Spain. I had a 4 a.m. wake up to take a 7 a.m. flight um, starting in San Sebastian, going with a stopover in Madrid. And then I had a Madrid to JFK flight. And then I had to go to LaGuardia to go to Chicago because uh, I wanted to go to Midway and not to O'Hare. Um so I did all of that on Friday um, because there was a little event there, the Chicago Marathon over the weekend. Um, Friday night had a marathon charity team dinner because I still run with the same charity team I've been running with there for the past seven years. Um, they had a really good turnout. Uh, 40 people, I think, showed up to the dinner that night. And um, Dispatcher Mike was there because he he also ran the marathon and ran for the same charity team. So we'll get to that in a moment as well. Um Met up with some other friends after that, and I think after probably 30 hours of being awake, I finally crashed into my hotel bed. Um, I don't even know what time of night that was, probably midnight local time in Chicago, so like 8 a.m. Spain local time the next day. Uh, I was up for a while. Hmm. Uh, the next morning, Saturday morning, there was a 5K kind of shakeout run to do. Um, when I packed for this trip, which was like two weeks ago, uh, the weather in Chicago looked pretty good. Um, I probably should have known better that it's Chicago and it's October and anything can change with the weather in the Midwest because waking up Saturday morning, it was in the low thirties with a wind chill in the twenties and I did not have a hat or gloves. Um, I grabbed some, uh, uh, socks from one of the airline amenity kits that I'd received and used that as my gloves. (laughs) (laughs) Can you still see me? Okay. My video froze for some reason. No, you're you're coming in fine. Okay. So that's um, allow you to run on your hands when you're yes, you can, you can, you know, yeah. you can go all four. Talking about, talking exactly. about smart repurposing. Exactly. I mean, yeah. turn into mitts and, you know, exactly. Like, they actually worked, worked quite well. They're kind of fuzzy on the inside. They were nice. And the plastic bags um, you wrapped around your head looked great too. 
Yes, yes. No, I had I did have something to kind of make a makeshift hat out of, but uh, uh, then I went immediately to the store after that and uh, purchased some warmer clothes. Um, but anyway, kind of just relaxed the rest of the day that day and had the marathon itself on Sunday, um, which was awesome. Uh, the weather was pretty much perfect, except for it was a little windy, especially the second half of the race as the day went on, it picked up a little bit. Um, but ended up with a 12-minute personal best time and a yeah, Boston qualifier time. You did time. so well. That's really awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, really. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Doug Seth, did yeah. I not see that the first time ever in marathon history, the person that won the marathon under two hours, was that correct? Um, no. So that was the day before, um, uh, this runner, his name is Elliot Kipchoge from Kenya. He had, he has tried once before now he owns the, at the official world record for the marathon for the men, um, set in Berlin of two Oh one thirty four, I think. Um, but this was more of a kind of a call it an academic attempt to prove that someone can run a sub two hour marathon. Cause it was not on a course that was, um, eligible to, uh, have an official record on um, just because of the way the course was laid out. Um, and he had some pace runners, multiple, multiple pace groups who yeah. came in at multiple times. They took, you know, he took his uh, fluids and, and nutrition from someone on a bike as opposed to just off of a table. So a whole bunch of reasons why it can't be an official world record, but he ran one fifty nine forty. So wow. pretty, pretty incredible. And the uh, women's world record for the marathon was broken in Chicago this weekend. Bridget Kosky ran a two fourteen something. Wow, 214 yeah, yeah crazy fast i don't even know how you do that so oh, but we don't know how you do with it, what you did and that what you did an awesome <laughs> yeah, job getting there yeah. i'm getting there getting there slowly but surely take off of, <laughs> excuse me a few minutes here and there um but the real shout out goes to 12 minutes Mike. isn't that a 12 minute improvement on your it, yeah it's mm -hmm. a 12 yeah minute that's more than a few minutes <laughs> yeah so yeah in the past um since end of 2017 i think i've taken almost half an hour or more off of my marathon time, more than half an hour off of it. So cool. it's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. But like I said, huge shout out to dispatcher Mike, because he, this was his first marathon. He trained very hard for it. His whole goal was to be counted as an official finisher under the cutoff time. And he made it with four minutes to spare. Whoa. So, <laughs> congratulations, Yay. Mike. That deserves a huge round of applause. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. I've told him directly and on several different texts, how how amazed I am that yeah. he set his mind to this. He went out and he saw the the, the goal, and he just absolutely destroyed it. Absolutely yep. went out and 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 achieved the goal, and then some. So so very proud of, of yeah. dispatch of Mike. And you know, it's funny along the way we kind of were having our own uh, as we're running along the city of Chicago, having our own little av geek moments because you're watching the uh, the uh, approach paths for both. Uh, O'Hare and Midway at different points along the course. And you start, you know, everyone else uses probably buildings and landmarks to know where they are in the city. I think Mike and I both were like, okay, this is O'Hare. Okay. North of O'Hare. Okay. Back south of O'Hare. Midway. <laughs> south of Midway. Back north of Midway. Home stretch. Here we go. So yeah. <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> and they were towing banners that said, go staff, go, go staff, Mike. Go Mike. Yeah. Yeah. They definitely did. Thanks yeah. to um, Southwest Airlines for that. No, yeah. just kidding. Uh, um, that's exactly. why they were actually hallucinating. They really yeah, weren't. Yeah, at that point, 23 <laughs> miles in. Definitely possible. Well, that's awesome stuff. So, yeah, so Great I apologize job. for being late today. The reason I was late, um, I made a, uh, gosh, three weeks ago, probably I made this appointment to see my physical therapist today because post race, 
nice to work out some of the the kinks and angry muscles. And um, I mistakenly told you guys, not that pilots ever have trouble with time zones. Um, you asked me on Monday what I could do for the show today. And it's like, oh, my appointment's at two o'clock, three o'clock. I'll be a little bit late, but that'll be fine since you've already decided that. So well, we set up three o'clock. Did not take into account that I was in the central time zone and not the eastern time zone. And the way I had entered it into my calendar, it just shifted that the, time right yeah. on over. And I actually, <laughs> I had it in my mind that the appointment was two o'clock. So um, I was on my way there today at like one 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 thirty, and went, oh, no, that's that's not right. Oh, no. <laughs> A little <laughs> really early. <laughs> so sorry. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's okay. Hey. Oh, here. I I'm made glad it. You made it. At least it wasn't an airplane flight that you had to get on. Yeah, at least I didn't screw that up. Um, yeah. You know, usually I'm I'm pretty good sometimes about remembering to actually click the box that says keep in local time zone because mm -hmm. you can do that both on Apple Calendar and Google Calendar. And this one I just I didn't do it when I entered it. So. Oh well, we're glad that you could make Still. it for part of the show. Yeah. I've been listening in for about the past hour. It's been, it's been great. Okay. I've been enjoying the show. So excellent. Anything else? Uh, or do you, uh, cause oh. uh, mm -hmm. gosh, I don't know. Um, Oh, hello. <laughs> um, oh, kind of see Julie in the background. Uh, Dana just up oh, now she's, oh. she's leaving. She does not want to be seen. She does not want to be seen <laughs> at all. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Distraction. Nope. Squirrel. Nothing else. Nothing else. I Squirrel. think I've, uh, I've caught everyone up there and as short a time as possible. I'm trying to think I'm probably missing something out, leaving something out. I don't know. There's a beer in my fridge that uh, when Pilot Pip was here a couple weeks back left. And I feel like I should probably go get that and start consuming it. You should do thirsty. that. But before yeah. you do. Yes. Um, or go ahead. We'll, we'll wrap sure? up. No, no, no. I'll, yeah. I'll get it. I'll get it after the show. It's okay. Well, uh, we're just going to wrap up Donnie's feedback because we were still yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. discussing. Um, he was oh, I thought you were going to do that. That's why I was surprised that you uh, pulled me into the show. I was yeah. Ready. Oh, well, sorry. Um so again, his, his question was, you know, do we know anybody who's, who's become a self-made pilot juggling personal life, professional career, and the commitment to flight training? Uh, Steph is raising her hand. Um, and, uh, Dana, of course, told us about his, uh, self-made pilot journey, um, in culminating in being a, an airline pilot. Uh, again, from what I got from, uh, Donnie is that he was just talking about being a, a, a private pilot, which is great. And yeah, I think there are probably thousands or tens of thousands out there. I think I think it. most people do it that way, to be honest. Yeah. Um, at least, does he say he's in? He's, he's in, in Belfast. He's, be, so he's in Ireland, Northern he, Ireland. Yeah, and he's, but he's moving, moving to, to Dublin. Yeah. So a little different over there than here in the the U.S., which um, Dana and I can certainly speak to. But um, it's certainly possible, and it's it's like any other goal. You know, you you make your goal to do it. You figure out the logistics of doing it, and then you stick to what it is that has to be done to get there, whether it's financial things that you have to take care of, whether it's time and scheduling, whether it's a combination of all of the above. Um, but it can be done. Stick to itiveness is important. Yes. Yes, indeed. Okay. Excellent. So when we started the feedback stuff, we skipped um, number one and two because we thought that you should be here for this feedback. And the doctor in charge of sick. Yes. Mm -hmm. You are one you know, I do sick spine, doctor. Spine <laughs> You're now the anti-peristalsis doctor. Oh, yeah, good, I need good, to talk good. to you off air, Dr. Steph, by yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Trent sent in this. He said, uh, considering a career change from what I do now, I to try to become a pilot. I have gone up for a few trial fights, flights, not fights, with my local FBO. 
the only problem is that whenever we hit turbulence, I start feeling sick. I don't normally get sick when flying on the airlines, except if it gets really bumpy. Is motion sickness just something pilots get used to? Uh yeah, so I think everyone can probably chime in on this. So if you've not noticed it, um, you know, when flying for the airlines, my question is this. If you've gone up for a few trial flights, um, typically if it's, uh, you know, an introductory flight, the uh, flight instructor that you're with will turn the controls over to you so you can get a feel for handling the aircraft, get kind of an introductory lesson. Um, for most people, it's much easier to keep from feeling uh, air sick, um, motion sick, if you're the one in control of the aircraft, even if there is turbulence. If you're not the one who's actually flying, um, I think it's much more likely that you're going to experience those sensations. So uh, you didn't mention that, um, Trent, but that's that's one thought that comes immediately to, to mind. The second thing is um, I have known, um, and I think we've actually had feedback from other folks who have suffered from motion sickness um, their first few times out trying to fly and have stuck with it, that stick to again, um, to see what happens along the way and have had improvement in it over time. Um, you know, if it really persists or if you're, especially if you're noticing it in other, ooh, hello? I'm sorry. <laughs> in other, I'm feeling motion sick here. <laughs> the whole world is turning upside down. Well, I just saw Nick like tilting his head. So I decided I would tilt my head too. <laughs> um, you know, it may not be, uh, there's a lot of reasons why, why that can happen, especially um, inner ear issues, or if you have any type of, um, if you were experiencing any type of upper respiratory illness. So it might not be a bad idea to get those things checked out if it persists or if it happens in other settings as well. So. Okay. Yeah, yeah I think. Sorry. Uh, getting the leans. <laughs> I do agree, Steph, that, uh, you know, being at the controls usually for some people solves the whole sickness, mm -hmm. feeling a sickness thing because you are concentrating so much on keeping the airplane upright. Yeah, you don't have time to to feel sick. <laughs> right. Um, also, you know what inputs are being made. So you have that that direct yeah. feedback as well. It's not someone else is doing something and you're, you're not able to anticipate those motions or movements. All right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chime in here if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, go for it. So Trent, here, here's the deal. Uh, I actually can't spend a whole lot of time, especially in vehicles, uh, looking down. Like a lot of people can read magazines or their phone or anything else in the vehicle because it bothers me. I, I actually get motion sickness. And uh, I think I've mentioned it before. I do enjoy going on cruises. Um, I do get motion sickness on that. Um, and I do, when I'm not in control exactly what to, what they're saying, uh, I do actually have a problem. And, you know, early on in my career, when I was back working in the uh, a train department, I would go over the simulator, and that would actually really cause some bad problems for me. Even my just my recent recurrent training when, when I was taxiing the airplane, because the feeling is just so not natural in the simulator when you're taxiing the aircraft, that really bothers me as well. However, fortunately, what they've what they are talking about is exactly what I, I have no problem with. Like when I drive when I'm driving in a vehicle, and I'm driving. I have absolutely no problems with motion sickness when I'm in a boat and I'm driving, you know, when I'm, 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 I'm capting it, I usually don't have a problem. So it, it's actually, I think a mind over matter issue because when I'm flying an airplane, I have absolutely no problem with motion sickness uh, at all. 
don't need to take anything. You know, it's one of the questions on the FAA medical. As a matter of fact, do you have any issues that you have to take uh, the medical, you know, a, a pill or, or something for motion sickness? I really don't, but I do know what my limitations are. And I, I've learned over the years that when I'm in IMC and whatever other type of conditions that I don't have the ability to, to really have a good visual, you know, like flying at night, uh, I really have learned to trust my uh, instrument skills in, in trust the instruments. So I don't have a, a problem with, with, with motion sickness once I'm flying. But initially, just like you, way back when, when I first started flying, I did have an issue. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's a matter whether you can overcome it or not. And for me, it, it, was uh, it was an issue initially uh, i found that when i was flying if i was hot uh, the temperature was hot uh, then i would start feeling it but you know nice cool mornings and you know that feeling goes away so that had has a lot to do with it as well so that's just my personal experience alex has a good point in the uh, facebook chat room too he says getting your eyes outside can help that's the huge thing so um yeah make sure you're not just focused inside the the aircraft look outside see what's going on around you yeah, it's kind of a hard thing to do when you first start flying. You want to just stare mm-hmm. at the instruments, mm-hmm. and uh, you have yeah, that's a good uh, good tip there. Well, it's just like being on a boat, right? Yeah. When you're on a boat, what do they tell you to look at when you start seeing you feel motion sickness, right? You don't look inside the boat; you look out at the horizon. Hopefully, something that's fixed on land, like a building or something, and then usually that motion sickness goes away. So that's you know exactly correct. I mean, look outside, see, focus on something because with the motion, when you learn first learning to fly, motion of the aircraft is a little different from what you're seeing on the on the uh, on the instrument panel, and that's exactly the opposite feeling I feel when I'm taxiing the aircraft in the simulator. It's ex- that exact feeling. So mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah. I, when I'm taxiing the simulator, if I look inside, it goes away. When I'm looking outside, because the, the, the motion of the simulator is so different than what's going on outside visually for me, that's when I'm, I'm starting to feel that. So It's the, uh, the conflict between what your inner ear senses and what your eyes are seeing uh, that uh, causes it, isn't it, Steph? So it, correct. Yep. That, that ma- mismatch uh, puts your body under a certain amount of stress, and it's very common for your body when it's under that kind of stress just to go, I might need to run away here, so I'm just going to vomit up my last meal so I can uh, put on a good turn of speed. Um, so, yeah, uh, try and keep your eyes uh, matched with what the airplane's doing, so looking out, uh, which is fine. Uh, I'm one of those lucky blokes that has never really suffered from motion sickness, so it's a little hard for me to relate to it. But uh, I've had plenty of students uh, who have suffered from it. Uh, and um, the best thing we did to fix them was to uh, desensitize them, try not to turn uh, being airsick into a, uh, a reaction that occurs every time you fly, because otherwise there your body will start to go... I'm flying, so I'm going to be airsick so regardless up, yeah. of what's happening. So if you start feeling airsick, try and get uh, the instructor to back off and get some fresh air, lower the temperature, lower your body temperature a little bit, and recover from it uh, rather than allowing yourself to be sick. Even though after you've been sick, you may feel better afterwards, it's better not to if you can possibly do that. Otherwise, it just becomes habitual. Uh, and uh, the more often you fly, the more you will desensitize yourself to it. So try and keep your um, frequency of flying 
up as much as you can afford because the longer the gaps are, the more likely you are to suffer from it. I think I've Very mentioned true. it a few times. True, it's true. true. A Close few true. times on previous episodes that uh, one of my duties as the uh, assistant flight mm-hmm. commander in the uh, Air Training Command was having to fly with students that were kind of getting close to being washed out. In fact, they were on their on their last thread of of hope when the, dum, when I had to fly dum, with them. Dum, yes. Dum, dum, dum. yes, exactly. Um, and I found that in pretty much every case, it was a combination of both the motion of the airplane and how maybe their instructor pilots were flying it a little bit jerky, and also the fact that there's a lot of pressure on you to perform. And so I think that that was also another factor, not only the motion of the airplane, but also the fact that they were under that increased or the incredible amount of stress. And I tried to make a, make them feel, you know, relaxed and I didn't put a lot of pressure on them and tried to make them, I just tried to be as laid back as I could. And when I was flying, uh, showing them various things, I tried to be as smooth as I could and uh, all of them made it through to the next stage of training so that's one of the things i'm most proud about oh great that's of, brilliant uh, my yeah. career in the air force yeah so uh, trying, i think i would you know my advice would be stick with it for now try flying different times of day um maybe even switch up the instructor if you get a chance see if that makes a difference for you that uh look outside um and maybe have make sure you have some air flowing within the the cockpit there in the yes. cabin um also closely related to uh that one we just did is the second one in our feedback folder from Brett, Brett Fry. We all met Brett at uh, Oshkosh. Mm-hmm. Um, when I heard the feedback question about instant air sickness, it reminded me of the only time I've been air sick in a small plane. I was asked, asked to ride along as one of our friends wanted to get some aerial photos of some property. So three of us climbed into a 172 and set off from Toledo to the top of the Mitten, a- a.k.a. northern lower Michigan. We wandered our way along the east coast of Michigan on the way to Presque. Isle Airport. I think I would have pronounced that right, but thank you for the uh, the pronunciation mm-hmm. guide. Yes, Presque Isle Airport, PZQ, and their 4,100-foot runway. Along the way, we stopped in at Oscoda, Wurtsmith Airport. I could have used a pronunciation guide for these. I think I got that right, Oscoda, uh, Wurtsmith Airport, for fuel and a biology break. This airport, OSC, was decommissioned from the U.S. Air Force in the early 90s and only has one runway. It is a 1, 000, no, 11,800 feet by 200 feet. It felt like the guy flying, uh, yep, the pilot could have landed crosswise on the runway. Um, so when we get to the destination airport, we were invited to join some relatives for dinner. Here's, or here comes the lesson learned. No matter how good the dinner is, the traveler needs to remember the size of the vehicle they're traveling in and what may be waiting, uh, waiting them when they head home. We took our leave and departed for some more photography, needing to return to Toledo. Oddly enough, our pilot had mentioned that he had some garbage bags in his flight bag, learning from a prior situation. And I forgot to mention that the third traveler, the one that wanted the pictures, was bigger than the pilot and me, so the plane twisted a little each time he slid across the back seat looking for what he wanted pictures of. So you can probably see where this is all going. Full belly of food, plane moving around from passenger movement, looking through the camera zoom lens, and then a light chop developed. Oh, the misery and the sturdy garbage bags. It was a great lesson. And yes, we did get some good photos too. 
and it's a good thing there are vents in the 172 to let in some fresh air. That's all for now. Just wanted to share a little life lesson with you and the listeners. And I'm sure there are hundreds and hundreds of stories that so many pilots and travelers could share. Also, thanks again for opening the RV fridge to visitors at OSH 19. Your hospitality was greatly appreciated. Brett Fry. And our thanks to all those who kept restocking our RV refrigerator with mm-hmm. potent potables. Absolutely. Yes, I remember taking a uh, member of parliament uh, for the Labour Party uh, off for a, uh, a trip in the back of a tornado. And uh, we did some pretty easy stuff, you know, a bit of formation flying, um, went supersonic, which is pretty smooth, did a bit of low flying, and then he stopped talking to me. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so I can't see what's going on in the back of my mirror, so I thought, well, I better cave back to base. So uh, I wheedled my way home, and uh, he had been sick so much that he nearly cat five the aircraft. He nearly completely destroyed the uh, rear cockpit. And uh, we had to get medics to him in the cockpit. Wow. We had oh to, they had to lift him out. He physically couldn't climb out of yeah. the cockpit. Was he was sick. in just such an awful state. Wow. Uh, by the was way, he, I, did he end up really dehydrated as well from? from well, I, we're only one. airborne for about 35 minutes. So mm, I don't can, know how quickly you can get dehydrated. but. He he had he had puked up just about everything. What was quite amusing was he was on the lash the night before, so we had a party and a dinner, a formal dinner in the mess, and he had really uh, laid one on the night before, so mm. that probably didn't That's help. Probably what happened. So, and uh, being from the Labour Party, not a party I vote for, I didn't have a lot of sympathy. <laughs> but there you go. So were you flying as smoothly as you could have been? Nick. Oh, of course, I'm that kind of a pilot, mm-hmm. Jeff. I wouldn't purposely yeah. make a Labour MP violently sick. <laughs> okay, think that I was am. the answer I was expecting. No, no. I read between the lines on that one. <laughs> I don't know. I, fortunately, I'll say I have never been airsick. I have been pretty seasick one time, just the once. I will say just briefly, small boat, below deck, after dinner, six to eight foot waves. Not a great yeah. combination. No, so, it's not. My time being sick, and I think I've shared this a few times on the show in this last 10 years, uh, was had nothing to do with being in an airplane, actually. <laughs> it had something to do with what we had consumed the night before. Alcohol. Uh, a lot of PBR. Mm, and, uh, and what do we call it? Guam chicken. For those of you out there in the Air Force who have spent any time at Guam, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe that's not a thing anymore, but it was when I was flying in the 80s. And it, this, it's just like really greasy fried chicken wings, mm, delicious. which are really good. And if you eat a lot of them with a lot of hot sauce on them, I'm already feeling nauseous. A lot of hot, hot sauce, sauce <laughs> and fried greasy l- chicken, greasy PBR. chicken and PBR. Next day, not in Nashville. No hot chicken. Yeah, this was. Um, yeah, but it's very similar to that, but worse. And the next day I was we were climbing out in the 141. <laughs> And I, I, I got to the point where I went, oh, oh, this is not, I need to, I need to leave and go to the bathroom. And I slid my chair back or my seat, seat back. I'm, I'm doing that now, getting away from the microphone, but I, I, about half the rail on the 141 it starts from the side, the sidewall, and then kind of goes in toward the center console and then it slides up. And it's actually a lot of travel. I don't know how, 
how many feet, but it's it's a it's a long travel seat. And by the time you got to the end of the travel, you shouted. Nope, half of it, half of the travel. <laughs> <laughs> Not and, even that far. Yeah, halfway back is when it all just culminated in a, a huge mess. Yeah. So, wow, spectacular. Why is it I'm not hearing you guys anymore? Hello? 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 We can hear you. That's You're weird. What I do? Unplug. You unplug your. Do you unplug your. <laughs> when you were demonstrating. I, when I was, yeah, when I was rolling As backwards. You were demonstrating the, uh, it was weird. I could buddy. still hear a little bit, but not not uh, the normal volume. Now I'm, I'm back to normal volume. Well, so you get, have to put it all the way in, Jeff. That was, uh, yeah. You got to keep That's it all the way in, said, too. And no more the no, plug. Don't pull out early. The plug again. Oh, you have to else. take part. This is a family huh? show. <laughs> you keep the plug all the way in. Okay. So uh, anyway, thank you for sharing your puking incident, uh, Brett. Although he did not use the term, I did. Um, great. Let's see. I guess we can move on to. We're getting close to the uh, three-hour mark. I think we have about fifteen minutes or so to go. Um, Let's see what show. Oh, we have to do this one. <laughs> there are a lot of them in here that uh, we need to cover, but this is one of my favorites um, from uh, 15 from Texas, Charlie. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw. <laughs> oh, I read that whole thing. That is. <laughs> well, there's a yes. there's actually kind of cute, is, too. This is. I, She's actually kind of um, cute. There, it's a there's a video. There's like a one of the um, news agencies or whatever uh, over in Britain did a did a thing on this uh, and actually interviewed her. I don't know if that's part of this article or not. Would I be discussing if I said I had an affection for the L ten eleven in a very similar way? Yes, Good. really. I, I really didn't actually. Oh, there it is. Oh no, to keep it away from oh, Dana. Oh my god! <laughs> Sorry, I got to turn the camera off. I'm muting. See ya. Stop. Stop. <laughs> Abort. Okay. So Texas Charlie writes in, howdy guys and gals. You know, he's from Texas. Uh, like most av geeks, uh, I've had encounters with planes that left lifelong impressions upon me. Uh, as a child, I had a schoolboy crush on a DC-3. And even today, I fondly remember my first time with a Connie. But I think Michelle Kopke of Berlin has found a level of appreciation that few of us have considered. Not that I'm judging. After all, how many of us have run our hand along the smooth metal of a plane and felt as if it was more than just aluminum wires and hydraulics? Even so, a 737? At least it's not an A320. That would be crazy. <laughs> Adios, Texas Charlie. And okay, here's the article that he sent a link to. Get ready for it. Woman in a five-year relationship with a Boeing 737-800. And it's, quote, Physical. Michelle Kopke, Kopke, 30, from Berlin, says the Boeing is, quote, very attractive, sexy, beautifully built, and elegant. And she has a pet name for it. Uh, let's see. Darling. Five-year yes, relationship. Darling. Yeah, she calls it Darling. Um, and specifically a 737-800. Oh, Shats. Oh, oh, that's the nickname. The Shats. Was. Yeah. Well, okay. that's darling. Oh, that's yes. what this airplane did to itself. Uh. <laughs> it was, it was what, air sick? That's what this story is making me feel. No, like that doing. shats isn't air sickness. Ah. Um, that's Mich something else, I'm sure. Michelle sometimes gets to fly in him, 
but unlike regular relationships, Michelle is unable to spend quality time with her boyfriend, adding, a relationship with a plane is not easy and at times difficult. I can only get close to him when I fly with him or when I can get to him in the hangar, which has only happened once in my life. However, she has found different ways to indulge her affection. She said, I have a big model of him made of fiberglass as well as real components from him so I can act out my love to some degree. On the pedo tube. So there's a picture of um, Michelle. Trying not to go there. In bed with her um, kissing the 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 uh, front of the fuselage. <laughs> anyway, I'm not sure I can go any further with this before we uh, sure. yes. it becomes yeah. an explicit um, Why episode. would her nickname be that of a, um American politician? Huh? Schatz. Brian Schatz is actually the uh, um, senior United States senator from Hawaii. How would you, you know so. that versus us Americans? I don't. I've never heard of that. I've never heard of the guy. Really? No. Okay. Never. No. Never. Well, it's amazing what you can get from Google. It's amazing yeah, what, you can, what you can get from being retired and having all this time on your hands. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you took the press of a button. Yeah, there's some uh, pictures of here and well, here uh, embracing uh, her love. And, uh, yeah. Love that's, comes in all forms. It does. I mean, you know. We do love airplanes here. We do love airplanes. Maybe not to the extent that Michelle does. Different degrees. Yes. yes. Well, Different uh, there was a, a, a program of a bloke that loved car, a car. I think it was Volkswagen or something. So perhaps it's German. I don't know. <laughs> it might be the German thing. We'll have to ask Marcus. Uh, Marcus, yes, for our German listeners, how do you, you feel about your, that, gl the, your glider? That, uh, feedback to <laughs> Jeff. Jeff and Nick. <laughs> I really can't just say what my wife just said. I really just can't. She's seen the photographs, and I just cannot repeat what she said. Okay. Good. But Thank I'm you. My butt <laughs> off. <laughs> Thank you for not sharing that. Yes, um, it's a family show, folks. Okay. Um, trying to find one that might be short enough to cover in the limited amount of time available on the rest of the show here. William says, um, yeah, this should be quick. <laughs> uh, I am a relatively new listener to the show. My first episode being 380. Before my question, I would like to congratulate you all on doing such a great job on the show and supplying us listeners with wonderful content every week. My question is quite a simple one. Do you think it would be better to join an airline with relatively no experience under 150 hours or to build hours elsewhere, skydiver pilot, for instance, and go in with 2000 hours experience to apply to be an FO again? Thanks for doing such a great job on the show. Keep the blue side up. And this is William from Gloucestershire, England, <laughs> Gloucestershire, England. Very good. <laughs> Did I get it right? I think uh, you did. Yes. Gloucestershire. Gloucestershire. Um, so the the first option that you gave us there, relatively no experience, under 150 hours. I don't think any airline's gonna hire you with that. I mean, well, I think even, unless you're talking about like Abinitio well, yeah, stuff just, where you it, yeah, oh, that is okay. not yeah. I don't exactly have uh What's Any the multi-crew uh, course? Two fifty. Two fifty. Two forty or two fifty yeah. something. Like I thought that. it was two fifty. Yeah, something around that. A little more than that, but. Um, well, let, let, why don't we just rephrase it and say a low time pilot? 
instead of just being putting a number on it, let's say it's a low time ab initio pilot versus well, somebody that. Okay, regardless of what we get the idea, should I build up time and then apply or should I apply and get my foot in the door and, you know, get hired right away? And I think all of us would say the the earlier you can, you can if if your goal is to be an airline pilot and fly with a certain airline, the earliest you can get in is the be- is the best answer in my opinion. Whatever that yeah, is. From a career point of view. Yeah. Um, it from a seniority. Hard, mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be hard to build up flying experience once you're in an airline, but actually that doesn't stop you doing it because you can actually still, if you're interested in improving your flying skills, flying days off, uh, go out and rent an airplane and do the things that you think you need to do to become a good pilot. It doesn't stop you doing it. Yeah, I mean – Perfectly said. I mean, if you can get in the door at that low time threshold and build, you know, get through the training and build your seniority, you know, you're still building experience because you're flying with the, you know, know, experienced captains like Jeff and Nick that know what they're doing. Unlike me. No, I'm only kidding, really. But, Uh you know, seriously, uh, you know, you're flying with experienced captains that are going to probably help nurse you into the, the the role of being a pilot and and honestly it, it, in the commercial level it, it's you know it, a lot of the, uh, the the decisions as an fo more more or less you're just trying to back up the captain and what he's trying to decide and and, and kind of what i usually do here on the, on the show play devil's advocate you know say well what if we do this right so that's as a good fo will bring up some good points so, and then I, then I agree with Nick. I mean, Nick is, is stating something very important is that once you get in, build your seniority, build your experience, but then get the general avi- aviation side of it where you can build up some really good experience flying the airplane yourself, learning how to uh, manage manage the cockpit in, in different situations with a light aircraft, which is invaluable experience in my in my. Uh, in my opinion. So it's really a combination of both of what you're asking here. I think it would be the best, best solution. So I think we're talking about um, two different um, uh, setups here, basically. So, you know, here in the U S the seniority system for, for airlines, for companies is a big deal. Um, But you can't apply unless you meet more stringent hour requirements. So, um, if you were here in the U.S., which you're not, you would not be coming into um, uh, either regional carrier or mainline carrier with less than, in most cases, 1,500 hours, some cases 1,250, some cases a little less than that, depending on military experience or certain college degrees that you may have earned. Um, different in, in Europe and in other parts of the world where there are these ab initio programs and multi-crew uh, licensing pathways that can get you into the right seat of an aircraft with a company uh, much sooner. But also a lot of those companies don't have the same seniority um, uh, setups, yeah. structure, yeah, scheme. So uh, it just it just depends. It varies. Um, I think it's a hard question to, to answer. It depends on what your end goal is. Um, and I think it depends a lot on where you are in the world and how the training environment is set up. Experience always helps. Yes. Well, well I, said, Steph. Yes. I, William, very true, actually. I, very accurate. I hope um, this helped you, William, from Gloucestershire, England. Go be a Worcestershire. Worcestershire. In Boston, we know how to say that. Gloucestershire. Yeah. A Shire. All right. William, next time you're writing, just say you come from Kent. 
Okay. London. We know where that is. This was sent in from Lucas, uh, James, and Colonel Jeff. And it is a, a way to end the show on a on a high note. Um, Kai Klitenik, or Key Klitenik, I'm not sure how you pronounce K-I, uh, two years old of Ocala, Florida, smiled, clapped, and said thank you in sign language. After retiring American Airlines Captain Joe Weiss, pinned his wings onto the toddler's shirt at Miami International Airport on October 2nd. An American Airlines pilot capped off his final flight last week by giving his wings to a Central Florida toddler with Down syndrome. Captain Joe Weiss, uh, retiring after about 35 years, made the gesture on the tarmac at Miami International Airport on October 2nd after Flight 69 from Madrid landed. Sarah Tamar Klitenik, the... uh, Young toddler's mom uh, said, it's so amazing what he did. The whole thing was so cool, uh, told the Orlando Sentinel on Friday. Uh, they attended a family reunion in Palma de Mallorca. <sighs> That's not right. Palma. Palma. Did you say Palma? Palma. And happened to be sitting next to Weiss's wife, Wendy, during the flight back from Spain. As the women chatted, Wendy Weiss text, texted her husband in the cockpit, and he came out to the cabin to meet Kai. My last flight was very special for many reasons. I will remember this always. Our pilots and flight attendants have worn wings for more than eight decades, American Airlines says on its website. First given as a symbol of aviation training and qualification by the U.S. military in 1913, our wings are an iconic symbol of aviation ability and adventure. Uh, So anyway, it's just a it's really nice. uh, This young uh, two year old Down syndrome child. um, There's a photo of her in the cockpit and you can see the uh, the uniform with the four stripes uh, the arms of uh, Joe Weiss on his retirement flight pinning his wings on Kai so there oh, you go I do love that story that's great yes so I think that will end it for today's show um, if you want to learn more about the community which is really the best thing about this whole thing the uh, APG experience, uh, or you want to learn more about the crew, um, merchandise, uh, the coffee fund, if you're interested in joining that great group of people. Um, um, let's see, the uh, Plain Tales has its own page as well, standalone page. More mm-hmm. information, more in-depth information and, and uh, pictures and stuff to go with the awesome Plain Tales that Nick uh, does for us every week. Uh, there's, as I said, right in the middle of the menu of the Airline Pilot Guy uh, website is the Plain Tales page and so much more. Please head over to airlinepilotguy.com. And we are on the social medias. We are indeed. Head over to Twitter using the handle at APG Crew. You can find all of our individual Twitter information pinned to the top of the page and interesting things going on there about news in the aviation world and meetups and such. And even more information over at facebook.com slash airlinepilotguy. So please join us on the social meets and be social. Yes, please do. And uh, we also are on Slack. We have a Slack team created by Hillel, which I think... What the heck is on this hand towel? Hillel, cut it out, man. Come out, come over here. Tell us about Tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. 
On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and Plain Tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. Now you can go back to the bathroom. All right, thanks. Fire in the hole! <laughs> Don't let a match. He's our very own captain now. God bless you, Jeff, for keeping in with you each week. <laughs> no. it's it's no, it's my pleasure actually. And uh, we'd also like to thank again our awesome uh, producer Liz in Toronto. Thank you, Liz. <laughs> Yay! Everything you do, a great one. Thank you. I've been and thinking about Liz this whole show. Whole show. Uh, and he's ex- he's well, going to explain now why he's Liz is a dipsomaniac. <laughs> no, she provided this uh, this advertisement for the Crown Royal Bourbon Mash. Okay, that's what she brought me to. Uh, ah, just have to, to remind Oscar. Dana that uh, a lot of people are listening and they, they're not watching the video. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. I'm just going to leave in the part where you're just thinking about Liz a lot. And with that, we will end today's show. Thanks, everybody, for watching uh, the videos on both Facebook and YouTube, and especially those of you participating with the live show in the chat rooms. Uh, Thank you for hanging with us, and uh, thanks for downloading the show, reviewing it, and all that jazz. And until next time, wishing you... Clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Talons, Douglas. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. See you next time. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Meep, meep. Good day. a good good pilot till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats airline pilot guy I fly America oh airline pilot guy he can't land in heavy fall I got no friends Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly a